produce spiritual maturity. Now from way back when, our ancestors understood that there's something divine about our breath. Are you suggesting to me that heaven is actually a place? That the place of God is, a, is an individual place that you go? God is not a provable commodity. All the evidence in the world does not prove God. I believe that everyone who deserves to be saved will be saved no matter where, where they are or what they do. The Emergent Church, a loosely connected group of Christian churches rebelling against the cultural war going on in this country when it comes to religion. I just don't believe in Christianity anymore. In a sense, you're creating a Christian message that's warm, kind, and popular. That rejection of the judgmental God and an embrace of an image of a loving, accepting God. The cross isn't the center then. The cross is almost a distraction and false advertising for God. So here comes Rob Bell, he's made a Christian gospel for you, and it's perfectly palatable, it's much easier to swallow. That's what you've done, isn't it? Our purpose is to bring heaven to earth. With Bono, here's a guy who's a rock singer, who has done more to articulate what Christianity is really about than most of we preachers. We're looking for some kind of a new moral center. The person who's done more than anybody to promote these is Bono. Gosh, if the churches won't get involved, the rock stars will have to cry out. And and so Bono, you know, raise up Bono. You're leaving out the tough stuff. You do have to, you know, confine yourself to certain moral strictures if you want to call yourself a Christian. I would disagree with them. According to this critic, unbiblical and historically unreliable. That's true, isn't it? I um, am a gay-affirming pastor, which is, means I don't see it as a sin. The church is a whore, and she's my mother. Where a preacher in Michigan yeah. says there's, there's really no hell. I believe the, the man uh, is a false teacher. I believe he's a, a heretic. There's power in listening to the heretic. And today, I actually think that uh, we need to listen to a few heretics. Yeah, when we ask the question as to who is involved in the Emerging Church Tour, it's leaders. Uh, it's a very eclectic group, and it's it's almost like a who's who in, in heresies, because uh, you have, you know, whether it's Bono, 
the icon of the movement, the rock star, or the new thought leader, uh, Brian McLaren, or you have, you know, the political far left progressives, uh, actually Marxists like Jim Wallace and Anthony Campolo. You have your universalists and your extreme mystics and Tony Jones and Rob Bell and Spencer Burke and Doug Paget. Many of these different teachers bring something to the table and something very much the same as well. And there's been a unit of thought basically, and that is uh, postmodern thinking. Um, the Bible is not, you know, to be understood as propositional truth. Experience is more important uh, than uh, as a barometer for truth than is scripture. We really can't understand the gospel. Uh, you get many of these things that basically open you up to a lot of lies. When we ask the question as to who, you know, is involved in the emerging church, who are the main leaders, who are the key uh, figures who are influenced the movement, it's quite interesting. Uh, I became a Christian about 30 years ago, and uh, when I became a believer in just before 1981, uh, it was not long after that that I became familiar. Uh, I was in youth group, and I became familiar with Anthony Campolo and his sermon. We watched on uh, a movie, a video of it. Uh, it's Friday and Sunday's coming. And what's interesting is I began to see at that time and follow ever since that time this liberalism that was coming in the church, new age ideas, occultic ideas. Christ mystically indwells each person. And I kept my eye on Campolo since that time. So for me, even though it wasn't called the emerging church then, uh, Anthony Campolo and Bono, who we can talk about in a little bit, were key figures as far as influencing young people, these youth that were enamored most incredibly by Bono, and secondly, probably by Campolo at that time, these youth would take a lot of their ideas, a lot of their theological concepts, a lot of their liberalism, and they would become the leaders of the evangelical church. And it's amazing because the Trojan horse that the enemy had set up years ago in bringing liberalism into a lot of the mainline denominations just killed those denominations. But he had a hard time really penetrating in a substantial way the evangelical church. But there's, you know, many, many world leaders in the past have known that you go after the youth and the youth were attracted and I, I believe some of it was uh, very intentional on a spiritual level. And what we're seeing today is the fallout of that, uh, those first glimpses of teachings. In fact, Anthony Campolo and Brian McLaren have written a book together called Ventures in Missing the Point. And it's very liberal even before uh, Brian uh, had stepped totally out of the closet. But it's interesting because Anthony Campolo was teaching a lot of these concepts that are becoming popular in the emerging church, even in the 80s and then in the 90s, uh, before it was really called the emerging church. In fact, he states in his book, Reasonable Faith, a reasonable faith, he states that God has made each of us with infinite value. And the quote goes like this. He states that it is, quote, God who established the infinite value of every person who mystically dwells in each person, page 59 of A Reasonable Faith. And it's interesting because in his book, uh, Partly Right, uh, Campolo makes another incredible statement. He says this, we affirm our divinity by doing what is worthy of God's. He says that Robert Schuller affirms our divinity, yet does not deny our humanity. Isn't that what the gospel is? Well, anybody who knows the gospel knows that that's not the gospel, this is a different gospel. And of course he's, he's, you know, he's quoting Robert Schuller as well. And you're going back even further now uh, because Robert Schuller had brought a lot of these concepts in as well. And he was very influential uh, on Rick Warren and the purpose-driven movement, very influential on the emergence. Uh, so uh, we're going back even further. Now today it's defined as something new, but it's really old liberalism, you know, coming in the guise of evangelical Christianity. 
In fact, Campolo goes on to say in that same quotation from Partly Right, goes on to say this, the hymn writer who taught us to sing Amazing Grace was all too ready to call himself a wretch, forgetting our divinity. Then he quotes Eric Fromm, the godless atheist, and he says that Fromm recognized the diabolical social consequences that can come about when a person loses sight of his or her, or his or her own divinity. Now, that was Satan's lie in the garden to Eve. You shall be as God. The King James, ye shall be as God. In fact, I quote the King James there because Eric Fromm, one of the titles of one of his books was just that. Ye shall be as gods. He took the serpent's lie and titled his book that way. And it was Satan's original quest. He wanted to be like the Most High God. Uh, according to the book of Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says that the time will come when there'll be this strong delusion. And he says that the man of sin will come. And he will sit in the temple of God showing himself that he is God exalting himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped as God. So this has been Satan's lie from the beginning and it's been a new age lie. It comes out of Gnosticism, which was John identified as the spirit of the Antichrist in the early church. But now, and then later you saw it in Satanism, then you know Neo-Gnosticism, which is a form of Satanism. Uh, and now we see it in the church, the counterpart of the new age movement, the, uh, the emergence. In Anthony Campolo's book, How to Rescue the Earth Without Worshiping Nature, Campolo promotes the new spirituality and a sacramental view of nature. Campolo, who repeats the serpent's lie elsewhere that we are gods, which is the lie of New Ages and many emergence today, claims in the same book that Christians should band together with New Agers to save the planet. It's quite amazing when you think of Campolo as well because he's actually given warnings that he distorts the gospel. In his book, A Reasonable Faith, he states this, and I quote, there are some warnings that I wish to issue to anyone reading this book. He goes on to say a little further, any attempt to state the gospel in the dominant categories of a culture inevitably leads to a distortion of the gospel. Consequently, anyone who accuses me of violating the biblical message is correct. So it's amazing what was one time admitted to be a distortion of the gospel has been distorted even more since that time, but is now being called the gospel. Or they're saying, well, we really don't understand the gospel, as Brian McLaren says, but they want to treat, teach people as though and lead them as though, hey, follow us. But they're actually leading them away from the gospel of Jesus Christ into heresy and a different gospel. If you truly want to understand the nefarious genesis of the emerging church movement, uh, it's important to understand the pivotal roles played by business management guru Peter Drucker and his protege Bob Buford. Peter Drucker was a proponent of Eastern mysticism and believed that the idea that everyone is one with God should be a unifying force that could bring all religions together. Drucker, in turn, was heavily influenced by mystic Martin Buber. Buber has been called a prophet of the new Gnosis and, like the Gnostics of old, claimed that every human being possesses the presence of God in the form of a divine spark. In fact, Drucker favorably quotes the pantheistic statement of Buber in his own book, Landmarks of Tomorrow, stating of mankind that, quote, it needs the deep experience that the thou and the I are one, which all higher religions share, end quote. Peter Drucker uses an interesting analogy to illustrate his dream for a one-world utopian government. He claims that even as a stool needs three legs, so this utopian government would need religion, government, and commerce or business to work together. Rick Warren, in fact, borrowed this analogy from Peter Drucker to promote his world peace plan. We meet with the government leaders, we meet with the business leaders, and we meet, meet with the pastors. We train the pastors, but we also meet with these other legs of the stool so that they understand they have to bring the church to the table. Pastor Paul Smith, the brother of Chuck Smith, 
who started the Calvary Chapel denomination, chronicles his personal encounter with Peter Drucker, who was seeking to enlist megachurch leaders in the 1980s to conduct his social experience and co-opt the resources of megachurches to his ends. Smith wrote in his book entitled New Evangelicalism, The New World Order, published in 2011, that quote, Chuck Fromm arranged for me to spend three days at the Hilton Hotel in Ontario, California in the mid 80s, where Peter Drucker addressed a group of church leaders and seminary professors. Bob Buford sponsored the meeting. At that meeting, Buford explained to us that leadership communities are small groups of innovators and thought leaders pursuing a common ministry outcome, sharing ideas, developing strategy, and benchmarking measurements. Leadership Network discovered emerging ministry initiatives and carefully invites strategic leaders into these communities of peers who are seeking to improve their personal and organizational performance in the focused outcome areas." End quote. Paul Smith stated that Drucker and Buford targeted the Calvary Chapel movement because they had over 50 megachurches in the 1980s. Thankfully, the Calvary Chapel movement rebuffed Drucker and Buford's overtures in the 80s, even though the movement itself has not been totally immune to the influences of the emerging church movement. Smith points out that Drucker and Buford's failed desire to infiltrate and co-opt the Calvary Chapel movement in the 1980s was actually realized and was successful in the 1990s when applied to leaders of the seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven, and what would become known as the emergent churches. Smith states, The rise and development of the emerging church movement became both a significant collaborator and delivery system for the major paradigm shift that has affected and infiltrated the mindset of many evangelical pastors. The shift includes the new evangelical notion that the church must become postmodern in order to reach secular America. The shift includes a definitive move away from the belief in absolute truth. The shift, sadly, but most importantly, includes the accommodating and compromising retreat by many from the belief that the Bible is without error." End quote. Pastor Paul Smith further explains that, quote, Drucker was intrigued with the megachurch from a specifically sociological and economic point of view. Any megachurch would do just fine, as long as it was pragmatically meeting the felt needs of people. The spiritual beliefs of a particular megachurch were really not a concern for Drucker. So it made sense to him that the ambiance of the megachurch should be, above all, seeker-friendly. After all, his personal pursuit of spirituality was fulfilled in Kierkegaard and Eastern mysticism, end quote. He goes on to write, the downhill ride on the slippery slope picked up more influential people in America and evolved in a most ominous unbiblical emerging movement. Incredibly, Calvary Chapel's rebuffing of Drucker and Buford's attempts to co-opt the movement in the 1980s notwithstanding, Drucker and Buford have played a decided role in the formation of the seeker-sensitive church growth movement, Rick Warren's purpose-driven movement, and the postmodern emergent church movement, all believed to be at best spiritually compromised and at worst spiritually cancerous to the body of Christ by many evangelical scholars. Drucker's connection to the movements comes from a nefarious group seeking to co-opt the church's direction called Leadership Network. Former emergent leader Mark Driscoll and current emergent leaders Brian McLaren and Doug Paget acknowledged that the emergent movement morphed out of meetings that were spawned from an invitation-only leadership network conference headed up by Drucker's protege, Bob Buford. Bob Buford, who has called Drucker my mentor, personal guide, and the man who formed my mind, has stated that, quote, Drucker was instrumental in the forming of leadership network and its development over the years, end quote. Emerging church leader Doug Paget states that it was the backing of Drucker and Buford's leadership network that lent clout to the growth of the emerging church movement. Leadership network also was a very powerful force in all this. When I would call on somebody or go visit a church or you know go to an event and I would say I'm with leadership network, 
um, people tended to know what that meant. Um, so it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the Doug Paget-ness so much as it was, uh, um, you know, the, the power of the position. You, ha- you had the clout of uh, Bob Buford and, and Peter Drucker and uh, the Willow Creek Association and the Saddleback Association all behind you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean it was like, hey, the, those are people, I know who that group is. They write some good stuff and they're, you know, they do some good things. On his website, Buford endorses occultists and mystics like Jim Collins, who talks about the importance of everything from the benefit of taking a New Age spiritual course that encourages contact with spirit guides and using occult tarot cards for spiritual guidance. Incredibly, these guys are the architects of the emerging church movement. In the introduction to Peter Drucker's book, Landmarks of Tomorrow, entitled The Postmodern World, he states, quote, At some unmarked point during the last 20 years, we imperceptibly moved out of the modern age and into a new, as yet nameless era. Our view of the world has changed. There is a new spiritual center to human existence. In Bill Hybels' book, Courageous Leadership, he cites his conversations with Drucker in regard to leadership. In his own words, under a subsection entitled, Consulting Mentors About Performance Evaluations, he talks about his conversations and what he learned from Peter Drucker about leadership. Hybels not only named Willow Creek's business school in Drucker's honor, but referred to Peter Drucker as one of two men who have most shaped my thinking on this issue next to Jesus. Rick Warren has stated of Peter Drucker, quote, he's my mentor. I've spent 20 years under his tutelage learning about leadership from him, end quote. As has been pointed out, Rick Warren is a good disciple of Peter Drucker, has enthusiastically promoted Drucker's three-legged stool concept in conjunction with his One World Peace Plan. And I'm in favor of partnerships, but we've been missing the third leg of the stool. But we also meet with these other legs of the stool so that they understand they have to bring the church to the table. Warren states that, quote, the third leg of the stool is the churches. There's a public sector role, a private sector role, and there's a faith sector role. This should be absolutely shocking and alarming to anybody who is biblically informed about eschatology and what the Bible says about the counterfeit kingdom of the Antichrist prior to Christ's second coming to judge the world. Warren states that, quote, each of the three legs have something to bring to the table that the other doesn't have, end quote. In chapter 11 of Paul Smith's New Evangelicalism, The New World Order, Smith describes how, quote, emergent church leaders are focused on unity and a worldwide oneness reflected in the growing union between Eastern and Western cultures and thinking, end quote. Incredibly, in the emergent church movement, seeker-sensitive movement, and the purpose-driven movement, we see the reflections of Drucker's dream from the beginning of mysticism uniting the world together. Smith calls the coming together of Drucker and Warren a, quote, slippery slope and a, quote, marriage made in postmodern heaven. Smith says that the Drucker-Warren slippery slope includes, quote, an emerging one world church and a new world order. According to Roger Oakland, who was once a top apologist and prophecy expert among the Calvary Chapel movement, who read the original draft of Smith's book, Smith had initially pointed out compromise in the Calvary Chapel movement with the emerging church that were later scrubbed in the editing process. Indeed, Calvary Chapel, while vigilant in certain areas, has sent at best mixed messages as Chuck Smith has endorsed Druckerdite and emergent proliferator Rick Warren. Well, actually, in the emerging church, in their view of the Bible, uh, it differs to a degree, but when you look at its leaders, you get some very disparaging comments. You have 
you know, sometimes it may be subtle. It might be Rob Bell or one of the other leaders saying things like, the author of this book, as though we don't know who the author is, even though his name is pasted within the text and it's in the earliest manuscripts, you know. The Emergent Church is a lot of moving pieces. They're constantly redefining themselves. Uh, there's not an adherence to propositional truth, objective truth. Therefore, it's slippery like an eel. And I think that came out really clearly, and I would hope that all Christians would be able to see the interview with Martin Bashir on MSNBC with Rob Bell, because it was there that you saw what happens when you have those who don't adhere to uh, take a stand, a strong stand on what truth is, with a journalist who is looking for truth. And it was actually quite embarrassing uh, for Rob Bell, and uh, many people, their eyes were open toward the fact that the emergent church and what it has to offer is, is spiritually bankrupt without standing on what the Word of God firmly says. In fact, if it, the subject matter wasn't so amusing, it was it was almost comical. I mean, it was as though, you know, it looked like Rob Bell was, you know, a, a belly dancer on speed, dodging the questions back and forth, you know, and he had nothing solid to say. In fact, if the emerging church is, is like Jello, and Rob Bell was like Jello in that interview, uh, Martin Bashir was like the wall that he got splattered against because uh, the truth came out that, you know, I mean, Bashir actually accused him of deliberately amending the gospel to make it popular and to make his 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 message more broad and but in fact he was emptying the contents of the gospel in a sense you're creating a christian message that's warm kind and popular for contemporary culture but it's frankly according to this critic unbiblical and historically unreliable that's true isn't it no what you've done true. is you're amending the gospel the christian message so that it's palatable to contemporary people who find, for example, the idea of hell and heaven very difficult to stomach. So here comes Rob Bell. He's made a Christian <laughs> gospel for you, and it's perfectly palatable. It's much easier to swallow. That's what you've done, haven't you? It's echoes from Eden. You know, hath God said. You know, that's how uh, Satan worked from the very, very beginning to uh, confuse Eve, to cause doubt regarding God's word. Uh, emergence, you know, do the same thing. Emergent leaders, every cult has operated that way. I mean, whether it's a watchtower and, you know, with their watchtower publications and claiming you'll be in darkness if you don't have them after two years, if you just have the Bible, uh, whether it's Mary Baker Eddy and your keys to the scripture. Uh, with emergence, it's a lot of dispersion sometimes. Like, you know, Bell will say things like, you know, uh, he views it more as a human product than a divine product. Uh, but Jesus said, you know, thy word is truth, John 17, 17. Uh, Brian McLaren says that we're to drop our love affair, you know, with the scripture. He says this, and I quote, Drop any affair you may have with certainty, proof, argument, and replace it with dialogue, conversation, intrigue, and search. Rob Bell uh, in The Velvet Elvis says this, and I quote, is the Bible the best that God can do? With God being so massive and awe-inspiring and full of truth, why is this book capable of so much confusion?" End quote. In fact, in Bell's book, The Velvet Elvis, it, it kind of gives not only just his view on uh, the weakness on his conviction on who Jesus is, uh, but also it is revealing as to how he views scripture. He says basically uh, that Christians ought to be ready to find things out, like, you know, maybe Jesus really wasn't the Son of God. Maybe he was the son of a man named Larry. He just wasn't virgin born. He's not really the son of God, not really who he claimed to be. And uh, we find this out from like DNA evidence and we find out that, you know, he's basically the product of Christians snatching uh, mythologies from the Dionysian and uh, Mithric cults and what have you. Uh, 
And he says, you know, we need to be prepared to accept those kinds of things. And when you hear someone talk like that, and you realize that they could hold their faith, so-called, if, if those things aren't true, you start to see what their faith is really made of. It's not built upon Jesus Christ as the, you know, God in the flesh, the God-man uh, who came to atone and die for our sins. It's, it's based upon an eclectic view of many things. And uh, one day something might be true to them and the next day it might not. But they obviously aren't holding to uh, the authority of Scripture. Emergent leader Tony Jones says to stop looking for some objective truth when we look into the text of the Bible. And he calls the Bible a subversive text and, and says it's a blanking, use F word, scary book. And, and he goes on to say that, you know, that we needed to de deconstruct it, you know. So it's heartbreaking indeed because these are all, as I mentioned earlier, echoes from Eden, hath God said. And it's through these means that emergence in a very subtle way, but it's very factual, end up getting people lined up under them as an authority. Because you see, they are the high priests that can really interpret the Bible because they have this mystical connection with whoever this God really is. And and then again, it opens the door, since you don't have concrete, solid, objective truth, you don't can't really gauge what a relationship with God really is, then it opens you up to a plethora of different occult and mystical experiences and allows you to open the door to other things that Satan would love to bring into the church and what she is doing. When it comes to dealing with eschatology or the emergent church's view of the end times, it gets kind of scary actually, uh, because the Bible talks about this ecumenical, new agey type movement in the last days. And Jesus said, if possible, even the elect would be deceived. And it talks about this compromise in, you know, in the professing church and this huge deception going on. And we see emergent leaders and how they deal with what the scriptures say about the end times. Uh, they typically just dismiss it because you see, they have their own agenda for the future. They've latched onto a lot of the new age ideas about, you know, us humans, we're the saviors. We build the kingdom of God on earth, you know. Uh, we'll, re we'll realize our divinity with some of them. And what's amazing is, uh, basically when they approach the book of Revelation and other prophetic books that deal with the end times, or at least those passages in other books, uh, they dismiss those as either being conditional, uh, i.e., you know, Brian McLaren, or allegorical, or they take a preterist position like uh, Rob Bell, or, you know, they simply allegorize or, or, or just flat out just ignore it. Just not something they want to discuss. They don't want to, they don't want to be part of the conversation, you see. And then what happens is, you know, their followers that look to them as leaders, uh, are, you know, ignorant often as to what the Bible says about the future. And when they do hear things about what the Bible says about the future, they say, oh, well, that's just, you know, these conservative evangelicals or fundamentalists in their view of what the Bible says about the future. And they don't realize that, you know, just like, you know, many of the other things the emergent church has rejected, these are right out of the mouth of Jesus. In fact, uh, Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and others, when it comes to God's judgment in the last days, they basically blaspheme God. They say, you know, Rob Bell in his last book, Love Wins, when it has to do with eschatology regarding the final judgments, that if God really, you know, sends people to hell and it's eternal, and after they die, he judges them with wrath, well, and he has all kinds of horrible things to say about God. Well, guess what? God says he really is going to do that. So you, in reality, he ends up blaspheming God. Uh, Brian McLaren says that if Jesus Christ comes back at his second coming with his mighty angels and flaming fire to judge the wicked, that, well, you know, then he's a jihadist Jesus. Well, guess what? 
the scriptures are clear he is coming back with his mighty angels in flaming fire to judge the wicked and guess what uh, your interpretation of who Jesus is is wrong uh, but your blasphemy stands because you're saying if this is who he is this is he's a jihadist Jesus and I'll quote him he says this the Jesus of one reading of the apocalypse brings us to a grim resignation the world will get worse and worse and finally this jihadist Jesus will return to use force domination violence and even torture the ultimate imperial tools to vanquish evil and bring peace end quote and that's from his book everything must change but the reality is this isn't just one a version of what people think Jesus will do. This is what Jesus said would happen. Jesus said things would get worse and worse. In the Olivet Discourse, when they asked him about the end of the age and the sign of his coming, uh, he talked about how lawlessness would increase, how the love of many would grow cold. He said that things would get so bad that if he didn't return and those days weren't cut short, no flesh would be saved. Uh, the, the world would, with, would annihilate itself because all the New Agers and Emergents, everybody who thinks that they're going to run the world swell without Jesus coming back, basically, uh, it's not going to work out that way. They would all end up annihilating themselves anyways because they've got a bunch of people wanting to be their own gods and wanting to rule the world. Uh, the Apostle Paul said things would get worse as well. Second Timothy chapter 3, uh, he said, You know this, that in latter days or the last days, terrible or perilous times would come. Men would be lovers of self, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. He said, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Storge is a Greek word there, uh, without, without family love, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, inconvenient, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, i.e., so much of the emergent church, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Then he goes on to say in verse 12, uh, a little bit later, he says, and all those who will live godly, in Christ Jesus, really seek to follow the Lord and follow his word, they will suffer persecution. But he goes on to say in verse 13, the very next verse, but evil men and imposters will wax worse and worse. That's not an interpretation, that's just what he says. That's what Jesus said. Uh, the apostle Peter said that in the last days mockers would arise, saying, where's the promise of his coming? Sounds like an emergent question, you know? He warns against this attitude of uniformitarianism and then Peter says there's going to be catastrophism not uniformitarianism and just as there was a flood in the past there's going to be a judgment with fire and that God has a reason as to why he's waiting and hasn't returned yet and that's because it means salvation he's not one that any would perish but that all would come to repentance and uh, he says to go on and hasten the day of the Lord because Jesus said when the gospel of the kingdom is preached and all the world's witness to all nations then the end would come and that's the marching orders that we have as true Christians to go and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ his death on on behalf of man's sins his burial and resurrection uh, the good news that we can be saved from from the penalty of our sins that what we deserve because we are wicked and we have offended a thrice holy God but the eschatology of the emergent church uh, it's trying to paint more of a, a dominionist type picture that you know we just need to uh, change the world with the social gospel and and while many of them will deny being dominionist what's left when Jesus isn't here who's gonna run it and if you're gonna be part of it then you're the one having dominion when it comes to dealing with what the Lord Jesus Christ said about the end times, many emergent leaders dismiss the teachings of Jesus concerning the last days. As we've seen, Brian McLaren mocks the idea of Christ coming back in the clouds of glory to set up his reign on the earth as a jihadist Jesus. Many emergents opt for the over-realized eschatology of preterism, claiming that the end times already took place way back in the first century. All of this, of course, paves the way for an unbiblical eschatology that plays right in the hands of satanic forces that would love believers to be set up for the end time deception. 
While we can agree with many of the criticisms of the emergent church made by the former emergent leader, Mark Driscoll, there are serious concerns regarding hangovers from Driscoll's more overt emergent days. Alongside Driscoll's unrepentant and continuous promotion of unbiblical contemplative or occult prayer, his lack of discernment in promoting perverse music and evil in pop culture, and his potty mouth gutter preaching which tickles fleshly ears and led emergent leader Donald Miller in his book Blue Like Jazz to call Driscoll the cussing pastor. Driscoll also denigrates teaching on the end times and broad brushes those who faithfully teach what Jesus revealed about the end times with those who may be fanatical in their approach to biblical eschatology. Driscoll goes so far as to categorize those who are faithful to what Jesus and the apostles taught about the end times with heretics. Some will believe, however, conversely, that virtually everyone is a heretic. They have unholy and unhelpful apologetics and discernment ministries. Driscoll impugns those who talk about the end times and last days. They'll start using words like Illuminati and end times. Yet Jesus himself warned repeatedly about the end times, and many of his messages were about warning believers to read the signs of the times that would herald his coming so that they would be prepared and not caught off guard. Driscoll says that they talk about the church being apostate. Those people who think that virtually everyone is a heretic, they are generally ruled by fear. These people are scared to death. The whole church is apostate. However, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus himself warned that many would fall away. And the Apostle Paul warned that prior to Jesus' second advent, that the Antichrist and apostasy would come first. Driscoll went on to state that they talk about the return of the Son of Man being Jesus. And, you know, the Son of Man is Jesus. Yet this is the very language that Jesus himself used to describe his second advent. Driscoll states that they talk about Satan setting up his kingdom and a new world order. Satan is setting up his kingdom and the one world order is coming to existence. Yet Jesus himself revealed in the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 13 and 17 and elsewhere, that Satan would set up a new world order comprising of every nation and people and tongue. And that in the last days, that one would have to take the mark of the beast or antichrist to buy or sell in the coming satanic kingdom. Driscoll warns against those who talk about a global conspiracy, living in the end times, and the world growing dark. The end times, we're living in the end times. These are the last days, it's growing dark. However, Jesus himself warned that the world would grow darker and darker and stated that the love of many would grow cold and lawlessness would increase. And the apostle Paul prophesied that the last days terrible times would come and evil doers would go from bad to worse. Then Driscoll says that they mentioned that there will arise the Antichrist. The Antichrist is rising up. Yet the Lord Jesus Christ himself warned of the coming Antichrist in Matthew chapter 24 and that he would abominate the temple of God. In 1 John chapter 2 verses 20 through 22, the apostle John warned that while there were many Antichrists in that day, that the Antichrist is coming. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, the apostle Paul stated that the Antichrist would sit in the temple of God claiming to be God and that this delusion would deceive those who are perishing. Another way they deal with uh, end times scripture eschatology is Brian McLaren, he'll take the book of Revelation and, for instance, his book, The Secret Message of Jesus. See, he knows the secret message, and, and really what it says in the book of Revelation isn't really what has to happen. In fact, he states in that book that the book of Revelation is a book of possibilities. Uh, there can be an alternative ending. It's a conditional book, you see, uh, because if we do this, this is how it can turn out.
What's interesting is it mirrors the, the work of Barbara Marks Hubbard, who is one of the leading New Agers, who also, she has a commentary in the book Revelation uh, that was dictated to her by her demon spirit guide, you know? And the spirit guide told her and showed her, you know, that there could be an alternative ending and, and what have you. By, by the way, the spirit guide lets her know that uh, many, many millions of people will be basically annihilated because uh, they're like cells, cancer cells in the body and they have to be eradicated from the body humanity. Of course, when you read about what leads up to Armageddon in the tribulation period, there are many uh, who have, it says in Revelation 12, the testimony of Jesus, uh, who are persecuted uh, and also the woman in Revelation chapter 12, which I understand to be uh, based on the book of Genesis and the imagery used there to be Israel. So it's interesting that the eschatology gets changed, you see, because they don't have a high regard for scripture, therefore they can be flippant with it because they have another agenda. And we shouldn't overlook uh, Brian McLaren's relationship with uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard. Now, of course, if Brian McLaren can produce even one verse that says, hey, you know, this book is ultimately conditional as to how thing ends, things end up in the end as far as Christ coming back and Armageddon and all of that, uh, then we'd have to pay attention to scripture. But Brian McLaren is just a man, and we're not to add or take away to the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, 18 and 19 give these the most severe warnings for those who do. And what's interesting is rather than getting a conditional mindset in regard to the book of Revelation, in chapter 9, verses 19 through 21, after some very severe trumpet judgments, and then in Revelation chapter 16, with a couple very severe bold judgments that have just taken place. Both times we read after these severe judgments, and God says he brings his judgments into the world that the nations would learn righteousness. And we do see in Revelation 11 that there's some that, that give glory to God which is a term that's used for repentance in the book of Revelation. But it's very it's very small compared to the world, because in Revelation 9, which I mentioned in Revelation chapter 16, it talks about the world system at large, the people of the world, that in regard to their murders and their thefts and, and their fornications and their sorcery, their pharmacia, their drugs, and all these different things that they're involved in, idolatry. It says they didn't repent, Revelation 9. And in Revelation 16, it says they didn't repent, so we don't see, uh, God tells us, he knows the end from the beginning, what's going to happen. So it's it's fantasy, it's it's a lie to say hey, it's going to turn out differently than the book of Revelation says. And those who follow Brian McLaren are following him into a lie. Now it's interesting because Brian McLaren has spoken some of the things I just mentioned before a bunch of new age mentalities over at the World Future Society. And the World Future Society was founded, co-founded by Barbara Marks Hubbard. She, to this day, is a still a board member. And these are people who have very new age ideas about what the future should be. And a lot of these views are similar to those of Eckhart Tolle's, uh, who is, you know, promoted a lot by Oprah Winfrey, an occultist, a medium who channels spirits, who believes in this coming new world, or this new heaven, new earth that we're going to usher in. He has a book by that title. Uh, Jurgen Moltmann, uh, mentioned by Campolo and McLaren and other emergents. Uh, universalist, you know, and he claims that every action that we do helps bring about this this new earth. So what happens is that ultimately it becomes man becoming the savior. Uh, you don't want to bet on man. Our history for thousands of years has been bloodshed and evil. There will be a strong delusion where people think we have the chance to do it ourselves. And we can still reject God and reject the Bible and his word. But the great irony of this whole thing is uh, people like McLaren state, well, you know what? Evangelicals that believe what the Bible says about the future and take, you know, the book of Revelation more literally, they're actually helping bring on Armageddon. But the reality is, it's people like Brian McLaren and others who are rejecting the God of the Bible. 
who are fighting against him and his truth, who are setting up the conflict for Armageddon. It's amazing too when you see how many emergence, not just emergent, you know, purpose-driven uh, leaders like Rick Warren and, and Desmond Tutu and Robert Schuller and you know Brian McLaren, of course, and you know using the term uh, God's dream. And it's interesting because God's dream almost always has to do with the kingdom that God is establishing. He's bringing to this planet. And for many of them, it's just the whole world becoming, belonging to God. No, you know, separation between the sheep and the goat at the, at the sheep and the goat and the second coming. Uh, no radical second coming uh, whereby Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet are dealt with. Uh, but uh, a dream where by God is bringing forth the kingdom. And he's using these, you know, these change agents to bring it about. And it's quite incredible when you read it because you start to see these similarities in that terminology. Uh, Warren Smith uh, did a great job of pointing that out in his book, uh, uh, Deceived on Purpose. And what's crazy about all that is way back in the 80s for a lot of the young emergents, this was already going on. Uh, there was, you know, Michael Jackson's We Are the World. It was all about you know, how the world will become one and, you know, kind of like John Lennon's Imagine. You know, imagine there's, you know, no heaven above us and no hell below us, basically, and all the world being as one. And we are the world. Michael Jackson says he summoned that song. It just came through him. And it's about us, everybody just being one and all the different stars, you know, uh, came together and they sang together about how, you know, Jesus turned stones into bread. Which he didn't, you know. Uh, and on and on, but there was a Christian quote-unquote response to that. All these different Christian artists got together, Amy Grant and many of the top artists of the day, and they did a song called Do Something Now, and it was about how we're all brothers and sisters, and it was called Cause. Their group was called Cause, C-A-U-S-E, standing for Christian Artists United to Save the Earth. And, you know, you, you see that compromise. Hey, we want to be like the world. We want to get, we want to keep one foot in the church, you know, and one foot in the world and do the same thing. And what they don't realize is that an alliance without God is an alliance against God. You can't align with the world. And the scriptures tell us not to be unevenly yoked with unbelievers. And what fellowship does light have with darkness and Christ with Belial and, and, you know, the temple of God with the temple of idols and, and on and on. And he says, come out of her, you know, be separate, saith the Lord, and, and I'll receive you and I'll be your God and, and, you know, your father and you shall be my children. He says, touch not the unclean thing. And then, you know, the next chapter, Paul goes on to say that we're to perfect holiness in the fear of God. The fear of God is something that's incredibly missing in the emerging church. You know, God is somebody that you can just bop around with. You know, you don't fear him, you know. And But you know what? The fear of the Lord is the very beginning of wisdom, you know, uh, the book of Psalms and uh, the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1-7. And if we don't fear God, we really can't understand his truth. We don't revere him and hold him as majestic and reverently to be feared. Uh, you know, we, we are the ones that miss the point from the very beginning. We have to be real careful that we don't put our dreams, what we want, or the way we think it should be done. Us finite little, you know, people with, you see through a glass darkly as though we, you know, know what it's all about. We have to submit to God. We have to submit to scripture. And the scriptures warn that there would be this phony kingdom in the end times, this antichrist kingdom, and that he would claim to be God and it would look so beautiful, you know, like the age of Aquarius and everybody would be sucked in. And by the way, uh, Brian McLaren says he doesn't want a jihadist Jesus, he wants more of a, uh, a flower power theology, you know? And it's kind of interesting because then you hark back to that whole counterfeit kingdom of the 60s that they were looking for and they still continue to look for. And that's what you have, you have a synthesis of that false hope. 
and a rejection of our true hope, God become flesh, Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the resurrected Christ, uh, the second coming, his glorious return, the blessed hope, him bringing in a, a millennial reign, him bringing in the new heaven and, and the new earth. And it's sad because Paul warns that in the last days there'll be such deception that people will be saying peace and safety. Then their sudden destruction will come upon them as prevail upon a woman and they shall not escape. First Thessalonians chapter 5. And Jeremiah warned about people putting their visions, their dreams, you know, uh, in place of God's dream and leading people astray. That's what the false prophets were doing. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 23, we read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They take a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. It's interesting because when you look at ancient pagan religions, the idolatrous religions that God condemns, uh, you know, they're very, very mystical because the Bible says the gods of the nations are demons. And Paul says those who worship idols are really worshiping demons. And there's these satanic forces that they're worshiping. Therefore, you find a commonality within a lot of the uh, false religions that'll make up, you know, uh, the great harlot at the end. Uh, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth, they have a lot of very similar mystical experiences. Tragically, many youth are being caught up into the emergent church movement. And the Bible specifically warns that, that young believers uh, oftentimes don't have the maturity to, to recognize deception. Paul warns about babes being tossed to and fro every wind of doctrine in Ephesians 4 without strong Christian instruction. And in Hebrews chapter 5, we're told that babes in Christ are not able to discern between good and evil. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, around verse 18 uh, and 19, Peter warns about how the false teachers go after those who have barely escaped uh, from those who live in error. And I think it's interesting because uh, you have huge uh, groups that influence thousands of our youth groups by uh, influencing youth pastors like youth specialties. And youth specialties is turning many youth leaders toward the emergent teaching into contemplative prayer and the contemplative movement. And it's interesting because the very president, Mark Ostreicher, he states that Christianity is an Eastern religion. And while it is in the Middle East, uh, his implication is that, you know, Eastern religions share something in common. And he states that, quote, yoga is really just about stretching and slowing down. Sure, yoga, I suppose, could focus on Hindi or Buddhist gods or something, but it can also focus on Christ. He says Christianity is an Eastern religion. It has all its roots in the East. It's a bit baffling to me that people lose sight of this and insist on creating a false separation between Eastern religions and apparently Western Christianity. That's amazing because just because God called Abraham out of the East and brought forth, you know, the Mosaic Covenant, uh, then the New Covenant, and it happens to be in that region of the world, somehow allows for or, or lends itself to us embracing teachings in other religions in the East is ridiculous. I mean, how often does the God of the Bible warn against the false religious systems in the religions around Israel that were seducing them into paganism? Now, what's amazing about this is the very word yoga comes from the, the Sanskrit word 
uh, in Hindu to means to yoke with Brahman, the, the false gods. The Bible says the gods of the nations are demons. And to import paganism and, and mantras and different kinds of chants that are going on in the emergent movement and different types of exercises that come out of paganism and say, hey, we'll just use the name of Jesus and just think that Jesus is just going to show up because we're using this formula but using his name uh, is very, very dangerous. Merton talked about how in his contemplative prayer life, how he'd have experiences that were akin to being on LSD, which is a form of pharmacaea sorcery in the Bible. And it's interesting because uh, you have people like Tony Campolo talking about that mysticism provides a basis or the grounds whereby those in Islam can unite with Christians. You see, he doesn't feel we should witness to Muslims because they believe they already have God within them and that they are uh, children of God. And But we can unite through not them bowing down to Jesus Christ and recognizing his incarnation and the, the triune God and that he died for their sins and repenting and, and becoming followers of Jesus Christ, but through mystical experience we can unite. And that is one of the huge dangers in regard to uh, the contemplative prayer movement, not just demonization and uh, just the many sad things that take place in people's lives when they open themselves up to the spirit world. That's huge. But there's a bigger picture whereby these common mystical experiences become a thread that wed the different religions together to the emergence and what have you. And then they become part of this, you know, uh, you know, the Antichrist can just stroll on the scene basically. And it's like, hey, we're all having the same experiences. That Christians can unite with Muslims uh, on the basis that they supposedly uh, may be experiencing the same God is ridiculous on its face for anyone who knows the Christ of the Bible. Uh, God reveals to us that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God nine times throughout the Quran, uh, which is basically a war manual against Christians and Jews. It states that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. Uh, Christianity teaches that He's not only the Son of God, but that the true God is experienced in the triune God, that you can't even come to the Father except through Jesus, and that He is the only way, and that the way is through His cross, through what He did on the cross. And Islam denies that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So how could Muslims be experiencing the same God that we are when Islam is predicated on the lie that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, is not the Savior of the world? In fact, I was reading a book on Sufism, an Islamic book that was pro-Sufism, that was pro-Islam. And in this book, the dream interpreter in Sufism has a man come to him and the man lets him know that in his dream he had a vision of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ appeared to him and revealed to him that he had indeed died for his sins, that he truly was the Savior and he paid for sins on the cross. He says that in his dream that Jesus showed him his scars and apparently he was ready to become a Christian. The Sufi dream interpreter told him that what you experienced was misunderstood. It wasn't Jesus coming to show you that he'd been crucified for you. It was Jesus telling you that you must be crucified. Then this book, a pro-Islamic book, states that they took the man and crucified him. Now, how can we claim that we are experiencing the same God when Islam knows, true Islam knows, that their teachings are antithetical to the gospel? The only way we can join with them is by letting go of the hand of Jesus. John Wesley, the evangelist, who is probably one of the top two or three evangelists that had ever lived. He wrote long before Muslims can claim that Israel uh, was the problem. He wrote in the mid-1800s, quote, Ever since the religion of Islam appeared in the world, the espousers of it 
have been as wolves and tigers to all other nations, rending and tearing all that fell into their merciless paws, and grinding them with their iron teeth, that numberless cities are raised from the foundation, and only their name remaining, that many countries, which were once as the garden of God, are now as desolate wilderness, and that so many once numerous and powerful nations are vanished from the earth. Such was, and is, as this day, the rage, the fury, the revenge of the destroyers of humankind. It's crazy where it's headed, but the mysticism that's being preached is very much a ecumenical thread that weaves all, all of these guys together. One of the sad tragedies is that you have men like Rick Warren who's influencing literally hundreds of thousands of churches and pastors with over 30,000 churches doing the purpose-driven church and millions reading the purpose-driven life, endorsing mysticism and contemplative prayer, endorsing mystics and Buddhists like, you know, Leonard Sweet, uh, even uh, giving a, a, a strong endorsement for his book, Soul Tsunami, and talking about bringing the greatest joy of evangelism, where, and what kind of evangelism we're talking about with, with Leonard Sweet, you know? Uh, he's an occultist, and uh, he talks about this postmodern reformation in that book, and he talks about how we're birthing this new world, back to this whole idea that we are going to bring forth this, this new world. Rick Warren actually teamed up with occult New Age sympathizer Leonard Sweet to co-produce the series Tides of Change, which not only speaks of waves of change, but, quote, a new spirituality, end quote. Sweet not only points favorably to the works of confessed Luciferian David Spangler, but he lets us know that the new spirituality will be occult or mystically based. In his book Quantum Spirituality, Sweet states that, quote, mysticism once cast to the sidelines of the Christian tradition, is now situated in postmodernist culture near the center. Sweet then goes on to quote a Roman Catholic Jesuit priest to underscore his point. Sweet quotes Jesuit Karl Ranner's statement, quote, the Christian of tomorrow will be a mystic, one who has experienced something or he will be nothing, end quote. Those who fail to embrace the mysticism of the coming new age are resistors and will not even be considered worthy of the counterfeit kingdom. Emergents have returned to the heresies of the Roman Catholic Church, heresies that countless thousands of Protestants and Anabaptists were martyred for rejecting due to their desire to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Scripture. It appears as though the emerging ecumenism with Roman Catholicism, emergence, Islam, and the New Age movement is quickly shaping up into the fertile ground of the one world religion to come as prophesied by Jesus under the coming Antichrist. So one of the troubling things about Rick Warren endorsing a man like Leonard Sweet is that Leonard Sweet turns people on to David Spangler. Not only is he pushing New Age workings, but David Spangler has promoted this whole Luciferian initiation. Uh, in his book, that is Leonard Sweet's books, Quantum Spirituality, he credits David Spangler for giving him a better understanding of how these new light leaders will, you know, help people recognize their inner, inner divinity. And Spangler himself calls this recognition of this inner divinity as a Luciferian initiation. In fact, and I'll quote a few, give you a few quotes from Spangler to see how bad this actually gets. Spangler says this, Any old Christ will not do. Not if we need to show that we have something better than the mainstream Christian traditions. It must be a cosmic Christ, a universal Christ, a new age Christ. Spangler claims that Lucifer, the angel of man's evolution, is leading man to cosmic consciousness and Godhead. Of course, this is uh, exactly what happened in Eden uh, with the serpent. But Spangler also says this, he further explains, quote, the true light of Lucifer cannot be seen through sorrow, through darkness, through reflection. The true light 
of this great being can only be recognized when one's eyes can see with the light of the Christ, the light of the inner sun, Lucifer, works within each of us to bring us to wholeness as we move to the new age. And he goes on. Now, what's crazy about this is books like The Reappearance of the Christ that I have in my library when I was researching the New Age movement way back in the early 80s. And they're pointing us toward these New Agers, this New Age Christ, this birth in this new world. And and they talk about emerging from Christianity. And then you have the emergent church emerging from Christianity. And then the two are meeting and becoming one. The the sad thing is, and it's all sad, but it's really sad when you have uh, who knows how many hundreds of thousands or even millions of of young Christians that don't know the difference, who maybe aren't biblically informed and don't realize that the Bible exposes this very deception that these men are leading us into. What's going on here is people are actually confusing, which is what the Gnostics did, who Christ is, you know, who, who God is, who Lucifer is. And in Gnosticism, uh, what happened is Yahweh became the devil in Gnosticism, and Lucifer, who channeled through the serpent, became the liberator. And what's interesting is, uh, in Reflections of the Christ, one of Spangler's books, he talks about how Lucifer and Christ are the same force, and that Lucifer is preparing us for Christhood. And what that means is that what he calls the, the initiation of Lucifer, the Lucifer initiation, is that when the Christ appears, who will be the Antichrist, we will recognize our own divinity, because he's a prototype of what we can be. You see, because he shows himself as being God, and then he shows a way that we can recognize our potential as divinity. And what's crazy about that, you have men like Rob Bell quoting Marion Williamson, who is the greatest promoter of another occult series called A Course of Miracles, which was dictated by a spirit, by a demon, who denied the atonement of Jesus, said some blasphemous things against what Jesus did for us on the cross. Uh, he quotes her about you know man's glorification and dignity, although he doesn't say her name, that would have probably offed a lot of people would have been really upset about that. He instead says he's quoting Nelson Mandela. He's really quoting Marion Williamson. I love how Nelson Mandela puts it in one of his writings. He says, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. And then he concludes by saying, your playing small doesn't serve the world. We were born to manifest the glory, put on display to show the glory of God that is within us. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It's our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. Richard Abanis, who uh, is one of the leaders there at Saddleback and really had become like Rick Warren's personal apologist, he sat down with Rick Warren and had him answer a bunch of questions to his critics and published a book. 
uh, where Rick Warren answers his critics, and he's asked about his promotion. Does he, you know, promote or, uh, you know, the emerging church? And and Rick Warren gives an answer, and where he basically denies it. He says Christians basically look silly, you know, jumping on the bandwagon, the postmodern bandwagon, when everybody else in the world's jumping off. We look silly because just when the world's abandoning postmodernism here we are jumping on and that's what he says in response to whether or not he's for the emerging church but the crazy thing is when you go to uh, pastors.com his his website there's an endorsement of emergent books there's an endorsement of emergent practices Rick Warren has even gotten so far as to endorse Spencer Burke's the ooze website Warren states that the ooze website is quote one of the best online communities related to postmodern ministry this is really sad because Rick Warren has pointed thousands of pastors to Spencer Burke's Ooze website. Spencer Burke is the one who says that the church needs to listen to more heretics. We need to listen to a few heretics. Spencer Burke is the one who has taken his congregation into a Buddhist temple to practice occult guided imagery. In fact, Dan Kimball's book called The Emergent Church, which is about so-called vintage Christianity for new generations. And really, it's not vintage Christianity. What's interesting, since we've been on the topic of, of the emerging church and mysticism, uh, they like to make their followers feel they're going back to the early church fathers, and they're not. They're, the earliest church fathers in the first three centuries weren't into this mysticism. In fact, the emerging church would be considered outright heretical in the first three centuries of church history. They go back to the Roman Catholic desert fathers that came post-early church, and these desert fathers picked up on a lot of the practices of the uh, of the mystery religions, the pagans, the Buddhists, and what have you, with regard to contemplative prayer and emptying your mind and these things. The meditation we read about in Holy Scripture is not gazing at your navel and losing yourself and forgetting who you are and just emptying your mind. That's what Satan wants. The Bible says to gird up the loins of your mind. The Bible says we're to love God with the whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. The scriptures talk about how we're to be sober and be alert. We're supposed to use our mind and, and be on the alert and be on the guard for our adversary. The devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But the desert fathers and what many of the contemplative prayer people are into, they're following the practices of occultists where you open up yourself to this spiritual force. And scriptural meditation, the Bible says to meditate on God's word day and night. You're supposed to meditate on the content of scripture. Eastern meditation is inward and, and self-word. Uh, Christian meditation, biblical meditation, is Christ-word and filled with God's word. It's filled with content. So what's sad about Rick Warren in the emerging churches, he actually endorsed Dan Kimball's book on the emerging church. Uh, in fact, he wrote the sidebars alternating with Brian McLaren for that book. In fact, I'll quote to you what he says about that book, which I think it makes it quite clear where he stands with much of the emerging church. Warren states, quote, This book is a wonderful, detailed example of what a purpose-driven church can look like in a postmodern world. My friend Dan Kimball writes passionately with a deep desire to reach the emerging generation and culture. While my book, The Purpose-Driven Church, explained uh, what the church is called to do, Dan's book explains how to do it with the cultural creatives who think and feel in postmodern terms. You need to pay attention to him because times are changing. What's disturbing about Rick Warren's Daniel plan is he is incorporating doctors into that plan, uh, Hyman, Amen, and Oz, and what's interesting, a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim.
uh, to bring forth this healthcare plan for the church and, and teach his church about health and what have you and synthesize it with spirituality, which I think is interesting because you have men here who are involved in occultism again. Uh, they're involved in things like uh, transcendental meditation, different forms of Eastern mysticism, tantric yoga, Reiki. And when you start looking at what these practices are, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, transcendental meditation, years ago, uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, uh, basically evangelized the West, uh, came over here, went on veritable tours and lectured with the Beach Boys, was promoted by uh, the Beatles, and led masses of young people into transcendental meditation. A lot of these people that were practicing it began to have horrifying experiences, demonic attacks, things of that nature. And uh, this is documented. And it was able to slither into the to the schools, the public schools to a degree. And then books came out on how this is a very religious practice. And, and Maharishi Mesh Yogi, his own admissions from his own books were that these mantras they were uttering as they were meditating were the names of Hindu gods. Well, the Bible says that these, the gods of these nations are demons again. So, uh, people were invoking spirits and under the banner of what was, you know, billed to be something scientific. And Maharishi Mesh Yogi says, and through transcendental meditation, you're not just calling out on one spirit, you're calling out to the head of all these different spirits. You can get all the power from them at once, uh, which we would understand as the prince of demons or Satan, you know. Uh, with tantric yoga, you're talking about yoga, which is sexually perverted and mixes spirituality, kind of like Aleister Crowley's sex magic. He practiced uh, tantric yoga. And what you try to do is practice a form of yoga where you're loosing the serpent force, the kundalini force within your body and in your consciousness. And it, it, it's all quite crazy when you think about it. Even Reiki, you know, these doctors practices Reiki, and it's an occult form of laying on of the hands. And different Reiki literature talks about spiritual forces, transference of spirits, things of that nature, through the practice of Reiki. So what in the world is Rick Warren, who's supposed to be a shepherd of his church, doing but opening the church up to all kinds of occult forces? And I've seen videotape of Rick Warren talking with these doctors about meditation. It's very simple. I mean, there's a meditation exercise from Harvard. Mm -hmm. It's not religious at all. It's yeah. called the relaxation response. Yeah, Take a big breath. Yeah. Right? Blow it out. Yeah. Every time you breathe out, say the word one. Yeah. Do it for 10 minutes. You got all these thoughts coming in your head. Imagine a big broom, so we'll leave them away. Yeah. And if you can just take some time mm -hmm. and pray or meditate, mm -hmm. it decreases stress. Your brain is better. Make better decisions. If his Christian audience opens up to these things in thousands of churches, and he, he had mentioned that over 30,000 churches practice the purpose-driven church, and he was hoping that they would take on the Daniel plan as well. This is like opening a Pandora's box, you know? The serpent force. I mean, Paul warned in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, I fear lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, that your minds would be corrupted from your simple devotion to Christ, to believe in a different Jesus, a different gospel, that you'd receive a different spirit and that you'd bear up under this beautifully. He says, that's no marvel a little bit later that, uh, you know, that this is happening because he says, Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no uh, big thing that his ministers would transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. And that's how this comes, but it's to bring a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different, a different spirit to get people to receive a different spirit. That's what Satan's program is about. And now he doesn't just slither into the public schools through transcendental meditation until he's found out. He's slithering in the churches through the Daniel plan. And the irony of the whole thing, to me, is when I thought about that, wow, it's crazy, because the Daniel plan was based upon, you know, I mean, I should say Daniel himself. He had a 
health diet, healthy diet, and his countenance was lifted up. It was all predicated upon not entering into paganism and eating the things uh, the, off the king's table that were dedicated to demons. And the irony is this is called the Daniel Daniel's plan, and it's opening people up to forms of meditation that will open them up to demonic forces. One of the things that makes it incredibly clear that Rob Bell is a New Ager, he's into New Age thought and the view, his view of God is not the biblical view of God, even though he sometimes and often talks, especially from the pulpit, as though he's referencing and speaking of the God of the Bible, is his endorsement of Ken Wilber. Uh, on page 192, anyway, of my edition of The Velvet Elvis, uh, he encourages for a mind-blowing introduction into emergent thinking and divine creativity. He advises his audience to spend three months at the feet of Ken Wilber. When you realize that Ken Wilber is a full-blown New Ager, he's a Buddhist, he teaches the lie that we recognize our own godhood, that we are God, through uh, contemplative prayer. Uh, he teaches the lie of cosmic evolution, that what starts at matter eventually progresses to a realization of divinity, that we are God. Each of you now has a sense of simply I am, you are here, and this is I amness. And the simple recognition of I amness is an infallible recognition of ever-present awareness and ever-present big mind. And if you're aware of your own I amness right now, it's a infallible guide to big mind. In fact, I can quote from pages 42 and 43 of his book that Rob Bell endorses, and I'll quote it right now. Ken Wilber writes in A Brief History of Everything, the very book that Rob Bell is encouraging Christians to read about, quote, a cosmic consciousness that is spirit awakened to its own true nature. And he capitalizes spirit there because he's talking about, we would reference the spirit with a capital S because he's the Holy Spirit, but he's speaking of the spirit of God as he understands it. But he's saying that as we travel through this cosmic evolution from matter to spirit, we become aware of our own uh, spirit, that we are spirit, and that's our nature, capital S, that we are God. And he made no bones about, you know, that we are becoming gods. And that's what Rob Bell is pushing on his followers in Velvet Elvis. And that's why, you know, I have a hard time believing, you know, maybe he did think it was Nelson Mandela who had stated what he was obviously quoting from uh, Marian Williamson, but whoever he's quoting from, it's still these ideas that man has got this potential to be deified. It's still heresy. It's still a lie. The emergent view of, you know, mysticism and experience and trying to experience God through mysticism is so tragic because what happens is, uh, in mysticism, and this is, I mean, almost every ancient culture that has written somewhat extensively, you read in their writings about demonization. Uh, anthropologists talk about the great majority of cultures recognize that demons are real. They're, they're real entities. And the Bible tells us to guard against them. But you have men like Dan Kimball, whose book I mentioned uh, Rick Warren had endorsed. He said the old paradigm is that if you have right teaching, then you will be able to experience God. But he says the new paradigm is that if you experience God, then you can have right teaching. And the problem with that is, before I was a Christian, I opened occult doors. Uh, before I was 18 and converted to Jesus Christ and found 
uh, him as my Lord and Savior, uh, I was opening myself up to New Age philosophy and what have you, and I opened myself up to dark things. And if I would have followed Kimball's advice, I would think, wow, you know what? Now I need to follow the teachings these things are encouraging me in, you know? And I'd be lost. But thankfully, the Bible lets us know that we're to test experiences. Paul says, prove all things and hold fast or hold tight to that which is good in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The Apostle John said, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they are of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is, has come in the flesh, he says, is the spirit of Antichrist. So it's very important that Christians realize there's mass deception going on out there and the emerging leaders, the emerging church leaders are actually opening their followers up to these demonic hosts, whether knowingly or unknowingly. You also have emergent leaders like Rob Bell leading their church, not only to guys like Ken Wilber, who are teaching occultism and demonization and satanic views. Uh, you have Rob Bell also leading youth, leading many, many Christians into mystical practices, into different forms of mysticism and, and different forms of contemplative prayer, or different forms of Eastern meditation. For instance, he leads, you know, his his audience and says, you know, put one hand on your belly, take a deep breath and breathe slowly. And then he simulates it and he's leading them, you know, into Eastern mysticism. And then he tells them that the breath that's coming in and out is actually God. Take one hand, place it upon your belly. Take one hand, place it upon your chest. Let's breathe for a moment, shall we? Nice, big, deep breaths. Central to the Christian tradition for thousands of years have been disciplines of meditation, reflection, silence, and breathing. Now, from way back when, our ancestors understood that there's something divine about our breath. Take a moment as you breathe deeply to invite the God who made the universe into your breath. I wonder sometimes when we feel as though God is far. God is thinking, I gave you breathing. I can't get closer. Is God as close as breathing. Many of the emerging leaders, they'll have their followers, they'll encourage them to say words over and over and over again in their prayer life, contradicting what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said not to be like the pagans who say the same things over and over again, thinking that they'll be heard of God, not to be repetitious, Jesus said, in your prayer life. And so it's incredibly heartbreaking that you have them taking a word or two words. They'll say, oh, well, you know, a lot of times it's the Bible, you know, it's a couple words from the Bible. But it's disassociated from its context. Meditating on the Bible is, what is God saying to me? What's your will, Father? How do I please you and glorify you? And you begin to pray and talk to him about his word. Real biblical meditation will give me strength to obey you and, and obey your word. And it's a joyous encounter with God when you truly seek the Lord through his word. But when you take a word or two, you start repeating it because you feel like you're going to get some kind of spiritual effect. You're doing exactly what Jesus said not to do, and you're opening yourself up to these other forces. It's quite amazing when you, you look at the Islamic sympathies within the Christian church, especially when you realize that the God of Islam is absolutely contrary to the God of the Bible. Uh, we worship the one true triune God. 
uh, who was incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, these are uh, teachings about God that Islam not only rejects, but the Quran was specifically written uh, to battle against. Uh, and what's amazing is you have guys like Brian McLaren in his book, Finding Our Way, uh, page 22, 23, in that area, he talks about how Abraham and Moses and Jesus and Muhammad, same sentence, all encountered God. He writes about that. And he celebrates Ramadan because he wants to celebrate Muhammad's reception of the Quran. Does Brian McLaren really believe that? I have to ask that because Muhammad felt that he was possessed by a demon when he received the Quran, when he was receiving these revelations. They cover him up, he uh, would stand on a cliff, wanted to commit suicide, he felt that he had been was possessed by a demon, would be on the ground, would be frothing at the mouth. Many Islamic scholars point out that he felt he was possessed by a demon. Uh, he was convinced by his wife that, no, you're probably hearing from the angel Gabriel. He begins to communicate the very things that the scriptures tell us are the doctrines of demons. First Timothy 4.1 says that the last times the Spirit speaks expressly that some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Throughout the Quran, you read that Jesus isn't the Son of God and he didn't die for our sins, that Jesus, you know, is not God. I find that interesting that this supposedly came from Gabriel, when we only have two revelations from Gabriel, one in Daniel chapter 9 and one in the first couple chapters of Luke. And in the two revelations we have from the angel Gabriel, he teaches in Daniel 9 that the Messiah will be cut off, not for himself, but for our sins. He gives the very year of Christ's crucifixion, hundreds of years before it takes place, Daniel chapter 9. When you read the early chapters of Luke and you read what happened with regard to the celebration of the incarnation, Gabriel reveals to Mary that she will bear a son and he will be the son of the Most High God. So here Gabriel tells us that Jesus will be the son of the Most High God and that he will atone for our sins on the cross. The Quran is inspired by a spirit and it's written like a war manual against Jews and Christians and, and against Christians in regard to their holding to Jesus being the Son of God and dying for our sins. And yet Brian McLaren is celebrating the reception of that book and in the scripture it's identified in 1 John chapter 2 verse 22 that whoever denies the Father and the Son, that relationship with the Father and the Son, that that is Antichrist. So John writes about the spirit of Antichrist, and I personally believe, through my studies, is that in the West, Neo-Gnosticism is in the form of the New Age movement. In the East, in a great part of the East, the Middle East especially, Neo-Gnosticism takes the form of Islam. That's because there's certain tenets, like there's different places I've identified from reading the Quran and reading the early Gnostic Gospels. Gnostic Gospels talk about Jesus uh, creating these, doing these miracles where he claps his hand and these birds fly away, clay pigeons. You find that in the Quran years later. You read in the Gnostic Gospels how Jesus didn't die for our sins, you know. Uh, he was basically substituted for Judas, and Jesus climbed a tree. It's called the Laughing Jesus, that particular Gnostic text, and he laughs as they mistake Judas for him. Then you read in the Quran that they didn't crucify Jesus. They thought they crucified Jesus, but they were mistaken. It's not just those things, but the main Gnostic doctrines that were considered anti-Christ in the first couple centuries were that Jesus is not the Son of God, that Jesus did not atone for our sins, and those things found their way into the Quran. And now you have a synthesis, New Agers, 
and certain mystical Muslims and certain liberal, more liberal Muslims trying to come together and now the emerging church mixing with them. And you can see this all coming together under the spirit of the Antichrist. What's sad is right now you're seeing this unification taking place among emergent leaders, uh, Rick Warren, you know, with, with Islam and a comp compromising of the gospel. In fact, uh, Anthony Campolo not only, not only said that mysticism can become this great bond that can bring Muslims and Christians together, this, you know, whole thing of mysticism. But he also said that if we don't convert them, it's okay. They're, they're God's people. And then you have Rick Warren at Barack Obama's inaugural prayer, doing the inaugural prayer, and he's praying in the name of Isa at one point. And Isa is, is not the Jesus of the Bible. Isa is the Jesus of the Quran, which is a different Jesus, again, who didn't die for our sins and who is not God in the flesh and not the Son of God. I humbly ask this in the name of the one who changed my life, Yeshua, Isa. And then you have him also addressing the ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, uh, which just a couple years prior to that was designated by the Justice Department as a terrorist group or funding terrorism. And he doesn't give them the gospel. Somebody say, well, yeah, he came to preach Jesus to them. Hey, you know, praise God. I'd, I'm all for standing up at the gates of hell and proclaiming the gospel. That would be awesome. But that's not what happened. He encourages them on how to be successful. When you look at what Islam teaches about ultimate success in the Quran is the domination over every other religion of Islam, by Islam, through the use of jihad and going out your, against your enemy and slaying him wherever you find him. And, and Christians are allowed to live as long as they submit to Islam and, and pay, pay the toll tax, you know. Uh, otherwise, they're persecuted, they're beheaded. It's getting really sad as to where this is all headed because these are the leaders of the visible professing church working with Muslims to bring this new world order about. Another really chilling development that we should keep our eye on that is heartbreaking as, as much of this is that you have emerging church leaders and secret sensitive leaders and uh, purpose-driven leader, you know, guys like McLaren and Robert Schuller and Bill Hybels and uh, of course uh, Rick Warren signing a document called Loving God and Neighbor Together. As Christians, we know we can love God and neighbor together. We all follow Christ and obey the Word of God and, and lay our lives down for one another. But when they're talking about that, they're signing a document that is a response to a Muslim document signed by 138 Muslim clerics called A Common Word Between Us and You. And both of these documents, the Muslims wrote first, and then you have the professing Christian response is about unification and that we can only be one if we agree that we're worshiping the same God. And both documents affirm that document that Rick Warren and Brian McLaren signed uh, affirms that, that the God of Islam is the God of Christianity. Both documents call Muhammad a prophet. Chillingly, the preamble to the so-called Christian agreement to the Muslim document signed by emergent, seeker-sensitive, and purpose-driven leaders states this, quote, before we shake your hand in responding to your letter, we ask forgiveness of the All-Merciful One and of the Muslim community around the world, end quote. The so-called All-Merciful One is none other than Allah. This is a prayer to the sunless Allah, who is called the All-Merciful One throughout the Quran, and not to the true God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see Rick Warren in his inaugural prayer for Barack Obama, when he prayed in the name of Isa, conflating the God of the Bible with Allah, the so-called compassionate and merciful one. And you are the compassionate and merciful one. 
It's important to understand that the specific formulation, compassionate and merciful one, which Warren used in his prayer and is used by professing Christian leaders in their agreement with Muslims when they ask the all-merciful one for forgiveness, is a formal Islamic formulation for Allah and is used of Allah in the Quran in 113 of the 114 chapters. There should be little doubt that Rick Warren and the hundreds of signatories seeking the forgiveness of the Quranic God are praying to the sunless Allah, which the Bible calls Antichrist and not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's really tragic about this is the Quran nine different times denies nine different times that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, how can you deny the incarnation, God in the flesh, and deny that Jesus is God and say that we have the same God? How can you deny that God is triune? Deny Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and claim that we worship the same God. You really can't. And, and Muslims recognize, ultimately, that we have to deny the Trinity. In fact, the Quran specifically states that Muslims are to get Christians to cease and desist to believe in the Trinity. In fact, the common word document is based on a surah, a verse in the Quran, which states emphatically to make a common word between us and them, the Christians that calls the people of the book, and get them to deny or not to say that God is three or that they're, God is triune. So the Quran, as a war manual against Christianity, inspired by the spirit of Antichrist, is based on desire, Sharia law, to be presented throughout the entire world. And the affirmation of Allah as the only true God in the denial of the Trinity. In fact, I'll read a couple verses from the Quran that substantiate the point that I'm trying to make. Surah 4, 171 in the Quran says this, Believe in Allah and say not Trinity. Cease. It is better for you. Allah is only one God. Far is it removed from His transcendent majesty that He should have a son. In Surah 364, O people of the book, that would be Christians, Come to a common word between us and you, that we worship none but Allah. In other words, people of the book, Christians who are following the Bible, come to a common word with us Muslims, that we're not going to worship anybody but Allah, and that we associate no partners with him, i.e. the Trinity, i.e. Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And then it goes on to say, that none of us would take others as lords besides Allah. In other words, that would deny and exclude the idea that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Bible teaches us that the denial that Jesus is Lord and the denial that he is the Son of God is the doctrine of Antichrist. Now think about this. It's important to understand that the very name of the Muslim document, they call it a common word between us and you. Christians, professing Christians, write back, like Rick Warren and Brian McLaren, sign and agree that, hey, yeah, we all worship the same God, i.e. loving God and neighbor together, meaning we're loving the same God. Therefore, we can hope to have world peace. And it's compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring forth this world peace movement, which is exactly what's going to happen under the kingdom of Antichrist. You have to deny that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, take the mark of the beast, which is the name of the beast of numbers, named it by our cell in his kingdom. And it's interesting because uh, William Lane Craig, who is a top apologist and philosopher, he said that Rick Warren and these other men who signed onto this were basically signing up to become Muslims. And we put all these things together and we realize that 1 John 2.22 identifies uh, Antichrist. And there are many Antichrists that have come and that will come again. But there's an ultimate Antichrist as well. Is a denial. That spirit is a denial of the Father and the Son. And again, 
this is the movement that we're witnessing before our very eyes and we're seeing much of Christendom being swept up into it through the purpose-driven movement, through the emerging church movement, through the seeker-sensitive movement. When you consider Rick Warren's peace plan, and he's got big plans for the world, huge plans, God's dream, you know, of a, a world government, a, you know, world business, uh, world church. Uh, he's got this, you know, three-legged stole. He wants these things to all work together to bring the world together. Uh, and he says that, you know, in a thousand years, uh, all that will be left is a church. So in Rick Warren's view, it seems as though, uh, when he announced his plan for world peace, his peace plan and the P of that peace plan was planting churches because he assured everybody, hey, you know, this is really about evangelism, reaching people for Jesus. But in front of a uh, eclectic group of world leaders, uh, he announced that he was changing that P to promoting reconciliation. Can we not work together uh, in building the three legs of the stool? For the last three years, I've been working on a prototype of this. It's called the peace plan, P-E-A-C-E. Promote reconciliation, equip ethical leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, educate the next generation. And now this peace plan had to do with unity, uh, bringing everybody together, making everybody one. Uh, he announced that plan at Anaheim Stadium before tens of thousands of people. And when he announced it, first they kicked off with Purple Haze, Rick Warren singing, you know, Purple Haze in my brain, you know, Jimi Hendrix's song about LSD. Jimi Hendrix talks about how he was possessed and songs just came out of him, you know? These guys are singing this song, Rick Warren leading with his band backing him uh, about Purple Haze and, you know, back to the 60s and that whole mentality of the age of Aquarius. And here he announces his peace plan. And his peace plan, he said, uh, we'll do anything, you know, to establish the kingdom of God on earth. So this is Rick Warren's dream and that we're going to establish God's kingdom on earth. And, and in a thousand years, he says, all we have is a church. Well, in a thousand years, Jesus said the gate's narrow, the way is narrow, few enter it. And who are all these people that make up the church? Well, it's not the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll have a false church first before Jesus Christ actually returns. And what's interesting to me is Rick Warren has his own agenda. In fact, he has uh, denigrated Bible prophecy. Page 285, 286 of, of my edition of Purpose Driven Life, he states that uh, Bible prophecy is a diversion from the devil. Now, you don't want to you study the Bible prophecy, even though a third of the Bible is prophecy. Uh, you can't be a student of the Bible without being a student of prophecy. He states that it's a diversion from the devil. You don't want to be distracted from our mission. He states that if you are diverted like that, uh, you're like the man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back and isn't worthy of the kingdom of God. So he puts out two of the biggest boogeymen not to study the prophecies that the Lord's given us, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Without a vision, the scriptures teach that, that God's people go astray. And yet Rick Warren teaches that it's a diversion from the devil, from you know the real mission we're supposed to be on. And he threatens the forfeiture of salvation that you're like the man who set your hand in the plow and look back. And it's tragic because what he's doing there is he's turning people's eyes from what God says about the future. Because God actually warns about what's going on with a lot of the emergence and the purpose-driven movement and where it's headed. 
And it, the Bible blows the whistle on this whole thing about how there'll be same peace and safety, how the world will come together, how there'll be such compromise, and how true, genuine Christians will be persecuted because of the name of Jesus. And I don't know that that's his motive. I don't know if it's spiritual influences on him. I don't know what it is. I just know it's happening, and it's working out perfectly uh, for the enemy, that is. And it's a tragedy because with regard to Rick Warren's peace plan, uh, he has many, many, many people signed up, and he's gone into Syria uh, and claimed that, you know, it was a nation of peace toward Christians. Syria is a place that has had uh, Muslims and Christians living together for 1,400 years. So it's uh, a lot more peaceful, honestly, than a lot of other places. Christians have been here the longest, and they get along with the Muslims, and the Muslims get along with them, and a lot of, uh, a lot less tension than in other places. It's a moderate country. And the, the official government role and position is uh, to uh, not allow any extremism of any kind. Even though the State Department had classified them and still does as uh, supporting terrorism, Christians can't openly evangelize in Syria. It was at that time that it came out that he was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. The Council on Foreign Relations is working vigorously to diminish American sovereignty and create a new world order. When Rick Warren was first exposed as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations by Joseph Farah and WorldNet Daily, leaders from his church at Saddleback first publicly denied it, claiming that he had only attended CFR meetings. Later, they would have to confess that he is actually a member of the CFR. So his peace plan is 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 very very uh, scary as it fits into the this whole ecumenical movement, this whole God's dream, kingdom, dominion, new world order, and where the church is headed at this time gets even more chilling because we know when this new world order comes about this you know false religious system world religion uh, that those who will suffer are those who not only Israel uh, and there's you know dominoes have been lined up against them already in the Middle East but also all professing Christians whether one believes that Christians will go through the tribulation or be raptured before I think all of us believe there'll be Christians in the tribulation period, no doubt. And uh, the scriptures are clear that Jesus said, you'll be persecuted for my namesake by all nations. And uh, what we see with Rick Warren, and one thing I studied in the 80s regarding the New Age movement, I wrote an uh, article that's still online called The Coming Persecution. And I had writ I read all kinds of New Age books, and over and over again, I kept seeing the same thing. It's like I didn't have to read 50 books to get the quotes. It was like... They were all over the place from the New Age bookstores over and over again that they were going to have to eliminate certain people to bring this great bloodbath, to bring this new world order. And uh, what I've been, been seeing lately, or for quite some time now, within the emerging church, within purpose-driven statements, is they talk about how there's just a lot of people just aren't going to fit in. They have to either change or die. Rick Warren, being interviewed by Larry King, he, he you know talked down on fundamentalist, you know, and whether one considers himself a fundamentalist Christian, uh, evangelical, conservative evangelical, uh, he, he said these are people, they're selective in what movies they watch. He said in another interview that fundamentalists of all varieties, including Christians, are the great enemy of the 21st century. Amazing. A guy by the name of Dan Sutherland, an expert in implementing Rick Warren's uh, purpose-driven model, he states that a leader who opposes the purpose-driven paradigm uh, he says is quote a leader from hell uh, Rick Warren himself says that people that don't get on board with the purpose-driven movement uh, he goes this could lead to the death of millions of people and I quote God killed off a million people before he let them into the promised land 
That may be brutally blunt, but it's true. There may be people in your church who love God sincerely, but who will never, ever change. When we look at what Rob Bell uh, teaches on hell, and it's not new, a lot of people are alarmed by his new book, Love Wins on Hell. He was making statements about hell in The Velvet Elvis. He talks about how uh, heaven and hell are, are more to do with what you make your life now, what you make your life today, and less about the afterlife. I begin with the reality of heaven and hell right now. We see hell on earth all around us all the time. So I begin with these realities here and now. We see hells on earth right now. There are those that we sort of create our own, and then there are those we are the, somebody else's that sort of spills over onto us. He's just expanded upon that, and he's gotten a lot of news, but I'm glad he's out of the closet on it in a more vivid way, because now more evangelicals are realizing, wow, this is where he's leading people. And it's, it's not just what he's saying about hell, but his version of hell is ultimately universalistic. He's, he's teaching a form of universalism. The essence of his gospel was, trust me, I'll take care of it. Just trust me. He says things like there'll be a renewal of all things. He says I'll be lifted up and draw all people to myself. So he's like, uh, he's like inexclusive. Be careful because I'm doing something for everybody. And how exactly that pans out, that's God's job. Sometimes he wavers in his book between a hopeful universalist and a convinced universalist. But either way, he's a universalist. And he teaches that even if it's Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Mao Tsung, it doesn't matter. Hell is a refining fire. He says it's for correction. It's a, it's like a Protestant purgatory or emergent purgatory whereby, uh, God corrects or prunes and you can have gazillions of chances. When you finally, you know, come to your senses and receive God's love, you can leave there. And sometimes he writes as though everybody may get out, everybody may not get out, but then he makes other statements that, that God's love is irresistible. God has this irresistible love that will eventually melt, he says, every single heart. So at certain points, he's a convinced universalist that every heart will be melted and everybody's going to make it in the end. And this is very, very unscriptural to say the least. Will only a few select people make it to heaven? And will billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? In the very preface of Love Wins, he contradicts Jesus and he talks about there's this group of people, you know, these Christians who believe that only a few will be saved in the end. And he says they've hijacked uh, the Christian faith and, and they're presented as only a few will be saved. And then he heaps denigration upon that viewpoint. I think that's the real question here. Okay. Is the endless religious sort of compulsion to say, you're in, we're in, you're out, you're in, and to, to constantly sort of narrow it and all of that. And I think that vibrant, real, historic Christian faith is wide and leaves lots and lots of room for lots of varying perspectives. Where would Christians get the notion, where we have hundreds of millions of Christians through the last 2,000 years received the viewpoint that only a few would enter into the kingdom of God? From Jesus Christ, of course, repeatedly. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus was asked the question, is it true that only a few will be saved? He stated emphatically, he said, make sure you'd make every effort, agonizomai is a Greek word, make every effort to enter in the narrow gate. He says, for many will try and will not be able to do so. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it's one of the few verses that 
emergence hate to quote from from the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus commanded, Enter the straight gate, for broad and spacious is the way that leads to destruction, and many go that way, but straight and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few are those who find it. And so we have Jesus repeatedly in two different contexts, as far as settings go, teaching that their way is narrow, and that only few enter into the kingdom of God, and teaching that many go to the way of destruction. And when we look at this and we see what Jesus is saying here, it becomes very, very alarming when the next verses that follow that in the Sermon on the Mount are warnings about false prophets who will dress in sheep's clothing. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are as ravenous wolves. He says, you'll know them by their fruit. Because these false prophets, what they do is they stand at the crossroads between the narrow road and the broad road. And false prophets claim to represent Christ, but they encourage people, they make it look as though you can take the broad road and still end up, end up in the kingdom of heaven. And that sounds exactly what Rob Bell's doing. He's telling people that you can go through the broad road to destruction, but later on it comes up into the kingdom of heaven. At the end of the book of Revelation is this picture of a city, this renewed, restored city, heaven and earth come together, now the dwelling of God is with people, and then there are people who aren't in it. And those are the people who choose to lie and murder and all those sorts of things. Um, and there's this beautiful thing. It's almost like the writer, like another one of those sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, as he throws in this, oh, and there's a gate in the city, and it never shuts. Paul in Acts chapter 20, he wept. He, he preached about the whole counsel of God, he said. He, he preached repentance, he said. And then he, he states that with tears he's warned them. For years he says that upon my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, disciples rise up drawing uh, disciples after them. And so as Christians, we need to be warned that the Bible warns about these kinds of things happening. And we're told in Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel, that these false prophets would arise and that they would encourage the hand of the wicked and tell them that everything will be all right, you don't have to turn from your wicked way. And that's exactly what Rob Bell is doing, because might as well hate party like it's 1999, do what thou wilt, do your own thing, you know. I mean, can you imagine encouraging a, a potential serial killer, rapist, and child molester, telling them, you know what, if you don't turn from this activity, you might end up in jail, but right after you get to jail, the judge will let you out as long as you accept his love. You think that would dissuade them from thinking twice about their wicked practices? No, it would actually encourage it. And I believe Rob Bell is actually welcoming people populating hell. The irony of his book is that he's basically presenting hell in a seeker-sensitive way that you could end up there, but eventually you can come out on the other side as long as you receive God's love. And then even you know guys like Hitler and Stalin will be walking the streets of gold with us. There's not a shred of evidence, there's not an in, any indication in Scripture that you get a second chance after you're dead and buried, you can end up going to heaven. It's an evil, evil thing to teach because it gives people a false hope. And I'm afraid Rob Bell is going to have a lot of people pointing at him on Judgment Day. He's going to have a lot of blood on his hands for leading people to believe that. I mean, can you imagine Judas being told that? I mean, the Scriptures tell us that it's better that Judas was never born. Obviously, he's not one of these people that end up having universal uh, salvation because Jesus said it was better that he'd never had been born. And uh, In Revelation chapter 20 verse 10, it's after the beast and the false prophet had already been cast into the lake of fire. And it's over a thousand years later than Satan is thrown in the lake of fire. And so they've been in the lake of fire for over a thousand years and it says they're still there. You read that passage, it's where they are. Why didn't the beast and the false prophet say, you know what, 
why don't we finally quit being stubborn just to accept God's love? That's not the way it goes down. In fact, in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 12, it talks about those who take the mark of the beast. It says that they have no rest day or night forever and ever. And it's interesting because when uh, Rob Bell in his book deals with eternity, uh, the Greek word Ionios, he actually treats Ionios, which is a verb, as though it's a noun and just speaks of, of an age. But in chapter 25, verse 46 of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talked about how uh, the righteous would go into eternal life, but he said the wicked, the, the goats, they would go into eternal punishment. It's the same Greek word, Ionios. It's, a, it's, a, it's an adjective that modifies uh, what life will be like. And it's a word that is used of uh, contrasting God from that which is temporal to that which is spiritual or eternal and it says it's the word ionios and the words used over and over again not only of god's eternity but of eternal life and of eternal things and so it's important for us to understand that the bible nowhere offers a second chance after you go to hell jesus in regard to the ten virgins when he talked to in the olivet discourse in matthew chapter 25 he talks about how the door will be shut on five of these virgins which represent people and they knock and they 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 want to get in it's too late but they knock and they plead and and he says this the door's shut and he says it's too late even though they had a change of heart a change of mind uh he didn't allow them into the kingdom rob bell talks about the rich man going to Hades and and well he says this is really about what happens before his life not after and hell is really what you make your life and he he basically waters down what the Bible says hell is I actually I actually think there is hell because we see hell every day yeah we, we can resist and we can re reject what it means to be fully human and good and decent and compassionate so yes I think there is and we have that choice now, and I assume we have that choice on into the future. We have that choice on into the future. And of course, he does deal with hell in the afterlife, but again, it's the it's kind of a, an emergent purgatory. But when Jesus tells us that story, we have that rich man in torment in the flame, and this rich man is, you know, begging Abraham to send Lazarus because if they see one risen from the dead, you know, surely they'll repent because he's got all these brothers. And he's told by Abraham that he has revelation up there, and that's where he needs to make the choice, basically. You had your opportunity, he has his opportunity, and it's, there's no indication, again, of any kind of uh, second chance. In fact, it's interesting, when you look at many of the passages in Scripture, in Hebrews chapter 2, it talks about neglecting such a great salvation. And there might not be any hope if you neglect it. In Hebrews 3, he talks about how you can harden your heart to where you no longer can hear the voice of God. And then Hebrews chapter 6, he talks about how that heart can become so hardened that it's impossible to renew certain people to repentance. So if you can't be renewed to repentance, how in the world do you all of a sudden get right with God later on in life? In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no more sacrifice for sins for you. And there's only, it says, a fearful looking for a fire indignation which will devour the enemies of God. And a little bit later in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about Esau, and it talks about how he despises birthright. And it talks about even though later he sought it with tears, there was no place for repentance. So the Bible is real clear that somebody can get to the point where they harden their heart so much against God that they'll never turn back to God. Now, obviously, if somebody's crying out to God and they want to be right with God, they don't have to worry about that because obviously their heart's not so hard where they, they're not crying out in, and I'm talking about true repentance, where they truly want Jesus Christ to be the Lord of their lives. But there's warning after warning in Scripture. In Proverbs chapter 1, it talks about a defiant person who rejects the fear of the Lord. And and then he wants God later in life. You know, He wants the benefits, but he doesn't want to 
turn to God and God tells them it's too late. You didn't choose the fear of the Lord. So certainly if somebody can get to the point to where they hate God so much that they don't uh, turn to him until judgment day, uh, there's too many scriptures that point to a point of finality uh, and certainly death would be that point. So it's heartbreaking because uh, the scriptures are very, very clear in Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. It talks about a time toward the end of the tribulation period. This is at, you're at the last book of the Bible, you're at the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. And it, it discusses this time where people become so hardened against God. And in 22:11, it talks about let the evildoer do evil still. And let him who is unholy remain, you know, unholy. And let those who is righteous continue to do righteousness and him who is holy to continue to be holy. So there comes a point at the very end where God just says, you know what? This person, especially after all these judgments come into the world, where a person is so hard in his heart that, that he'll never turn to God. And then God, basically part of his judgment is that you're going to remain evil and filthy for eternity, still, forever. And for Rob Bell to come and teach, you know what, you can live a wicked, perverse life now. And he's also taught that, hey, if you know, don't let anybody make you feel guilty because of something you've done wrong, because we're not under the old law anymore. There's a lot of license in Rob Bell's teachings, and, and unfortunately, he's one of those, I believe, false prophets that we read about in Matthew 7 that tells people the broad road leads to heaven that Jesus warned about. And unfortunately, there'll be many of them that are judged that will say, Lord, Lord, a little bit after that. And Jesus said, he'll say, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness, you did not do the will of the Father. It's heartbreaking, and it's interesting because even non-believers can see through what he's doing with the gospel. Sam Harris, in his book, Letter to a Christian Nation, he talks about how this liberal theology that doesn't have wrath in it, where you know these guys think they're appealing to the world, he says it lacks intellectual merit that conservative Christianity has. Sam Harris is saying, hey, you know what, if there's a God, he's a militant atheist, if there's a God, it makes a lot more sense if you're going to explain evil, that God is against evil and he's a God of wrath that would destroy evil, than to say that he, there's a good God that really doesn't punish. Many emergent leaders like Rob Bell are leading their audiences astray by giving them the false hope of escaping hell without repentance in this life and are twisting God's glorious grace into a license to rebel against God. Take, for instance, Roman Catholic Brennan Manning, a favorite among emergents. Manning not only promotes contemplative prayer, mantras, visualization, and teachings that a Christian should proclaim, I am God, but Manning claims that murderers, prostitutes, and homosexuals can be saved even though they refuse to repent of their sin. Manning's popular book entitled The Ragamuffin Gospel goes so far as to declare that we can worship the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast and still escape hell and go to heaven. In The Ragamuffin Gospel, Manning puts the following false hope in the mouth of Jesus, stating that Jesus will say to the beast worshippers, And he, that is Christ, will say to us, Vile beings, you who are in the image of the beast, and bear his mark, but come all the same, you as well. End quote. That at least some emergent leaders have intentionally deceived their audiences is clear in the case of Brennan Manning, who wrote a touching story for Christianity Today about his heroics when supposedly visiting the suffering victims in the wake of the Hurricane Katrina disaster. Just five days after the Christianity Today article appeared, Christianity Today had to retract the story after Manning admitted, I lied, because he had not even made the trip to Katrina. 
Even worse are the soul-damning lies of emergent leaders like Rob Bell and Manning, which lead their audiences to believe that they could die worshipping the Antichrist as unrepentant murderers and adulterers and still enter the gates of heaven. Incredibly, Manning's licentious ragamuffin gospel has been called a spiritual classic by Christianity Today, and Christianity Today's editor, Philip Yancey, calls Brennan Manning his, quote, spiritual director in the school of grace, end quote. Tragically, in an article written by Christianity Today's senior managing editor, Mark Galley, Galley states, quote, I like a tranquil, even-keeled, self-controlled God, a God that doesn't fly off the handle at the least provocation, a God who lives one step above the fray, a God who has that British stiff upper lip even when disaster is looming. Galley goes on to state, when I read my Bible, though, I keep running into a different God, and I'm not pleased. This God says he hates sin. Well, he usually yells it. Read the prophets. It's just one harangue after another, all in loud decibels. And when the shouting is over, then comes the pouting. Later, Galley states in the same article, quote, I'd rather have a God who takes sin in stride. Why can't he relax and recognize that to err is human? I mean, you don't find us flawed humans freaking out about one another's sins. You don't see us wrathful, indignant, and pouting. Why can't God Almighty just chill out and realize we're just human? Galley goes on to declare, quote, This God is like a volatile Italian woman who, upon discovering her husband's unfaithfulness, yells and throws dishes, refuses to sleep in the same bed, and doesn't speak to him for 40 days and 40 nights. Later, Galley goes on to multiply his blasphemies by claiming that God is a righteous perfectionist who slams doors, rants, walks off in a huff, and even curses himself. He goes on to state, He's anything but calm and collected, reassuring, and reasonable. Galley goes on to compound his blasphemies even more by stating that God has such a bad temper because really he wants us to realize the New Age dream of becoming gods. Galley declares, quote, that's right, he thinks just humans can become nothing less than gods. And he also states, quote, what God wants is to raise the dead and make gods out of sinners. In Rob Bell's version of hell, there really is uh, no judgment. There's, it, it's, it's, you know, it's what you make it, and there's no wrath of God. And what's heartbreaking about this is that he's missed the whole point as to who God is. The reason his version of hell is weak, is, is lame, is because he has a weak view of who God is and a weak view of who man is. He has too low a view of God and far too high a view of man. Uh, God reveals himself as holy, holy, holy. You see the, the seraphim, six-winged creatures. Isaiah has just pronounced woe after woe after woe upon uh, Israel and upon his own people because of the judgments they're going to have to endure because they call evil good and good evil and they're putting uh, light for darkness and darkness for light because they wake up early in the morning, they're getting drunk, they're doing all these wicked things, they're stealing each other's land. And he pronounces woe after woe. But it's not until he's caught up in the very next chapter into the throne room of God and he sees him high and lifted up and transcendent. And he sees how holy he is. He sees these seraphim crying out, holy, 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 you know, to the Lord. And they, in Revelation 4, you see them saying the same thing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they do it, it says night and day. And these seraphim with two wings are flying, but with two they're covering their faces, they're covering their feet. They're so in awe of God, and these are holy, powerful angels. But they're in the presence of God, and they're so blown away by His excellent majesty and His incredible transcendence that they have to cover up. And you know what? They're seraphim. The word seraphim comes from, it means a fiery one. Uh, they're like, they're, they look like they're on fire. Because why? They're in the presence of God. 
And we're told in the scripture that our God over and over again, the Old and New Testament is a consuming fire. He's a powerful love. God is love. But, and, and Rob Bell makes a lot about that. But he misses the point that God is, whenever, and I praise God, I preach on the love of God. I preach that God so loved the world, that God is love. But you know what? We read, God is holy, holy, holy. We never read that God is love, 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 or God is sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. He's both of those, but he's holy, holy, holy. And when you start to recognize that, as Isaiah does, and he sees who God is, he begins to have less of an opinion about himself. And he says, woe is me, I am undone. And once you get that kind of epiphany, and you recognize how radical, how beautiful, how wonderful, how holy and righteous and pure and just and perfect in all of his uh, infinite uh, attributes God is, and you start to recognize who you are in light of him as a created being, who's fallen, who has broken his holy law and has been antagonistic toward his holy law, you start to recognize that you're a sinner and that you deserve God's wrath and hell starts to make a lot of sense. In fact, it's interesting because uh, to us in this world where we try to make more of ourselves than we are and we start to think how special we are and we start to forget that he created us and we ignore our sin and some even say, as the scriptures say, that they're without sin. We don't realize the, the seriousness of hell. If God is truly righteous, if God is truly holy, he has to punish that which is rebellious and wicked and perverse, especially if one won't repent. And it's interesting because it says we see through a glass darkly right now. And as we see through a glass darkly, uh, we don't see face to face. We don't know as we're known. We're very limited in our knowledge. So how dare we become God over the scripture and tell God that this is the way it should really be, or I'm going to change and tweak things so they're how I want them to be. You know what's interesting? When you go through the book of Revelation, one of the most beautiful things you see there is that God's people begin to see through his eyes. They begin to see, like Isaiah did, how holy he is and how bad sin is. So when you look through chapters like uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and they're crying out, you know, how long until you avenge our blood, they begin to see in even more radical contrast how wicked man is. Or in Revelation 11, or Revelation 14, or, or Revelation chapter 19, the first few verses, Revelation 16, over and over again you see the rejoicing of holy angels. You see the rejoicing of saints stating and proclaiming that righteous and true are God's judgments. They, be, they understand when you have God's eyes that His judgments are righteous and true. You're not in any question because now you have the full picture. You see the full orb and the extent of human depravity and of God's holiness. To the infinite degree of His holiness, do we understand it? I don't know if we'll understand it that deep, but we will understand it in a greater way than we do now. And nobody will be wondering why there's a hell. Uh, my, my huge concern is, is that tens of thousands of young people, older people, will fall hook, line, and sinker for his version of hell and universal salvation and feel no need to embrace Jesus Christ. But the Bible says today is a day of salvation. Now is the time. And if people don't turn now in this lifetime, there'll be no turning later. I um, am a gay affirming pastor, which is, means I don't see it as a sin. And I would imagine you hear from oh. vociferous critics of that position. Oh, yes. Yeah. Check out the reaction he got when he floated well, and, that and idea is, is at this I, black I, church. I came out in the church recently and said, you know what? 
I don't, I'm pro-gay marriage. I don't believe that that's a sin. <laughs> you know, I got Dane quiet. Everybody's like, I ain't saying no wrong now. I guess we're not ready for this yet, are we? You know, sometimes emergence will say things like Brian McLaren has said before, frankly, we just don't know what to do about or how to understand homosexuality. And that's because McLaren and a lot of these guys, they have positions, whether it's on hell, universalism, homosexuality, what the gospel is, but they speak very ambiguously because often if they would just be outright with what they believe or they want to teach because they're pushing the envelope, Brian McLaren has said that he's purposely mischievous in his writing, uh, you know, they would have been rejected by many in the emergent church who consider themselves trusting Jesus Christ, the Jesus, historical Jesus, the Bible. Uh, they'd been rejected a long time ago. But in Adventures of Missing the Point, written by McLaren and Campolo, they talk about homosexuality in that book and dedicate several pages to it. Campolo spends a lot of time explaining the way verses that condemn homosexual activity. And after he gets done trying to explain the way, and he does a uh, deplorable job, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't do justice to the scripture at all. Then he admits, he says, you know what, my understanding of these verses could be wrong because the church fathers, they understood the Bible that could be condemning homosexuality. So my understanding could be wrong because of their take on these scriptures. But then again, you know, the early church fathers weren't perfect either, so they could be wrong on that too. And then he concludes by saying, you know, homosexuals, as long as they love each other, it's okay if they live together, just try to behave yourself and don't have sex with each other, but you can live together as homosexual lovers, you know. Uh, and him and his wife have been, you know, homosexual gay marriage type advocates for, for years and have marched and everything else and a lot of people aren't aware of that but the, the emerging church is basically non-christian liberalism in the church and when are people going to wake up to it The emergent church is definitely, many of them are preaching a different gospel. It's an eclectic movement, but if you look at their leaders, you often get uh, very clearly a different gospel. Uh, I've read just emergence talking, you know, books on emergence by them, talking about how we can't even really preach the gospel. Uh, we, you know, we need to go and one, one emergent said, we just need, our church is just going to clean up a park for the next several years. So people could see us clean up a park and, and we can never really share the gospel. Uh, and then maybe our kids, once we've been a great witness, our generation, maybe then they can share the gospel. You start reading this stuff and you wonder, do these guys even understand what the gospel is? Of course, uh, Brian McLaren says we really don't know what the gospel is. Well, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spells it out for us. He says, I, I declare unto the gospel which I preach to you unless you've received in vain that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. He rose on the third day according to the scriptures. He says, this is the gospel. That's the good news. Yet, that's not the good news that you hear emergent leaders often preach. It can become very political with them. A lot of them are left-wingers like Anthony Campolo and, and Jim Wallace. Uh, Jim Wallace has advised the president. He was very instrumental in leading a lot of evangelicals uh, to support Barack Obama. It's interesting because you have 
Campolo and Jim Wallace, who are incredibly close friends, and Campolo has written much about Wallace's politics, and they're very progressive, far left, uh, even Marxist by Wallace's own admission, talking about Marxism as a, in a positive way. In fact, an accuracy in media report on his Sojourners magazine uh, stated that, and it reviewed all these, you know, hundreds and hundreds of articles, and it said that they would never even once come against human right violations in any communist country. And Wallace has supported communist causes and, you know, liberation theology. See, Marxism is atheistic. It's, it's godless. And, and what's interesting is Jim Wallace himself said this, As more Christians become influenced by liberation theology, he says they will also be drawn to the Marxist analysts and praxis that is so central to the movement. The irony is that so many emergents are preaching this social gospel and they're not sharing the true gospel of Jesus Christ, his shed blood, his atonement, what he's done to save us, taking care of the sin problem. And what happens is they're expending energy and you might be helping people physically, but what are you doing for them spiritually, you know? I mean, I'm all for helping people physically. Uh, tomorrow I'll hop on a plane with uh, 20 some odd members of our fellowship and we'll go to Uganda and we can't wait to work with AIDS orphans and, and work with AIDS widows and build and help and minister in that way. But we're also going to be sharing the gospel. For us, it's not either or, it's both. You know, I'll be able to do, by the grace of God, a pastor's conference and, and share with pastors God's truth and the word encourage them, be encouraged by them, but also work in the trenches with those who are hurting. And the funny thing is a lot of emergents talk about doing these things for the poor as they're drinking their lattes at Starbucks and they've dropped their five bucks. And but not many of them are actually going out and doing the work. You know who's been doing the work for the last two thousand years? Evangelical Christians who love Jesus Christ, who've poured their hearts and their souls and given their lives for the sake of the gospel. They've helped physically and spiritually. But you know, we don't want outward you know, try to work for outward reformation without inward regeneration. Because it's when we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Jesus said, when there's a born-again experience, when there's inward uh, regeneration, then there's outward reformation. We see the witness of that with genuine Christians who love Jesus and have embraced Him, that millions and millions of lives have been changed, whole cultures have been changed by those who've embraced uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. The irony of it's the social gospel. The irony of Marxism and socialism is it's the greatest oppressor of the poor that the planet's ever known. That's the, the amazing thing about it. Nations that have been influenced by liberation theology, influenced by the so-called social gospel, uh, they end up becoming prisons where their people want out because they become very oppressive. Marxism, which is what Jim Wallace has touted, is responsible for the murder of over 150 million people in the last century alone the greatest scourge to humanity that we've ever seen. And we want to resurrect that in the name of Jesus Christ and call it the gospel. That to me is one of the most horrendous and sick lies that can be perpetuated upon humanity. And it's very, very heartbreaking indeed. In fact, if emergents want to really help people, if they want to help the poor and oppressed, preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Preach that God became a man and entered into our condition because he not only to uh, die for our sins, but to rise again and conquer death so they can escape oppression forever and ever. 
the huge irony is emergents are leading them down this broad road. They're leading many people down this broad road that leads to destruction because they keep the life and soul-saving gospel for them. And then we'll have incredible amounts of people oppressed for eternity because they refuse to preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ to them. My hope and prayer is that emergents, those that are caught up in the emergent web that weren't aware of these things, that, that didn't realize these guys were teaching these things and maybe were on the periphery or, or maybe dabbling, would wake up and say, what am I doing? I want to be faithful to Jesus Christ. I want to be faithful to the gospel. I want to be faithful to my creator. He's the one I'm going to stand before. Not to what's popular, not to the latest slick NUMA video. I want to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Uh, many emergents teach a different Jesus quite obviously if you if you look at what they're actually saying you see in scripture uh, that Jesus is you know gave himself for our sins you know first Corinthians 15 which I mentioned earlier that you know his death burial and resurrection says I declare to you the gospel and that doesn't get preached in a lot of emergent churches I mean churches are supposed to be built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ but in many emergent churches you you might hear the gospel from somebody at church or maybe in one of the songs that happens to slip in, you know, uh, because many of them are preaching the social gospel and look at disdain upon what Jesus did upon the cross. Uh, Brian McLaren, you know, he's written about, you know, he's characterized Jesus in, in a couple of his books as being a, you know, if, if Jesus died in our place on the cross for us, then God the Father is a cosmic child abuser. Uh, that's blasphemy. You take the most incredible act where God becomes a man and dies in our place, uh, the holy, holy, holy God dies in the place of sinners, his created beings, to save us. You take the most incredibly beautiful, powerful story ever written, and it's a reality. It's historically true. We have the eyewitnesses. We have the documentations, uh, the documents. And then you call it an act of cosmic child abuse? To me, that's the worst kind of blasphemy. And other emergents call it a vile doctrine. Well, it so happens to be the most loving thing that, you know, Jesus said, no greater love does uh, a man have than he laid down his life for his brothers. Well, God did even beyond that. He laid his life down for his enemies. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's, it's absolutely amazing that this is passed off as Christianity when you can actually say those things about what Jesus did. And the scriptures are clear that he became cursed for us upon him. Uh, he fell what was due us, the scriptures say. He became sin for us. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. I mean, one of the clearest things in scripture is that Jesus died in our place to take our penalty. Yet, emergent leaders called a vile doctrine, or God the Father, a cosmic child abuser. What blows me away is that in the end times, there's going to be more and more blasphemy against God. And we're seeing that with the militant atheists. Uh, the Antichrist himself will blaspheme God who is in heaven. Well, it's interesting right now, in the name of Christ, emergents are blaspheming God. They're saying, if he's like this, then this is what we think of him. But they're taking what the Bible say about him and rejecting it. And that's who he really is. And they're ending up blaspheming him. And people are lining up, wanting to read their blogs, wanting to follow their cutting edge theology, when really it's old liberalism again. It's new ageism. It's, it's lies. It's, it's from the pit of hell. And people need to wake up and turn because some emergents are saying, hey, you could be saved in other religions. You could be saved in Buddhism. You could be saved in Islam. And Jesus declared that if someone tried to get in some other way other than through him, the same was a thief and a robber. John chapter 10, verse 1, verse 9. 
John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5, Paul says there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Acts 4, 12, Peter says there's, uh, their salvation is found in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. So let's be truthful. If we follow Jesus and we love him and we embrace him, let's preach Jesus. Let's be truthful and faithful to his word. If we are not, you know, really followers of Christ and following the historical Jesus of scripture, let's not pretend to be followers of Jesus and deceive mass people who think that you are. The Bible says that the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And it's interesting because Doug Paget, one of the emerging church leaders, has says that the, you know, said that the preaching of the gospel is a broken endeavor. It's, it's basically useless, you know. And of course, you know, he's a universalist, so he believes everybody gets in anyway. Uh, but it's interesting that it says it's foolishness to those who perish. And when you look at the emergence version of salvation, I mean, Brian McLaren, he says that Jesus, you know, he came to save Islam. He came to save Buddhism. He'll save Islam and Buddhism and all the other religions. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not the God who's called us out of religions that worship material things and, and worship idols and worship uh, the things of this world system. In fact, Paul warned in Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 through 8, he said, he says, I marvel that you're so quickly removed from him who's called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. And then he says that even if we or an angel from heaven preaches another gospel to you than that which we've already preached to you, let him be accursed, eternally condemned in one translation, anathema, you know, condemned. Let him be accursed. And then he repeats it for, so we don't, you know, miss out on this. And he says, again, I say to you, if any man preaches another gospel to you than that which we preach, let him be condemned, let him be accursed. So God forbid that we would hold up certain teachers who are presenting a false gospel to the sheep, to the masses as those that we should be in conversation with when in reality uh, the scriptures say that they'll be condemned. What we should be do, doing is warning against them and definitely praying for them. I've been on my knees. I've been in tears. I, I, I cry for those who are not only receiving a false gospel, but I cry out to God in my prayer time that God would protect people from this false gospel. What people need is the true gospel. And the true gospel of Jesus Christ is stated again and again and again through scripture. And uh, Paul said, and I mentioned this earlier, I declare unto you the gospel by which you are being saved, unless you have believed in vain, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the scriptures on the third day. That's the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and the apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10, if we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, and we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord, we shall be saved. Jesus himself said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And he went on to say that he didn't send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him should be saved. But the problem comes from the rejection of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because in the next verses he talks about, you know, the condemnation comes because they did not believe in the only begotten Son of God. And they loved darkness more than light, and their deeds were evil. So the gospel is that Jesus died in our place to pay the penalty of our sins because we have sinned. The Bible says sin is transgression of the law. And the word transgression there in the Greek is not just to break God's law. 
It is to break God's law, but also it, the word has an, uh, reflects an attitude of, of rebellion, of opposition to God and his law. And what happens, even if we commit one sin, the scriptures say we're guilty of breaking the whole law. Whether you have, you have slung, you know, 50 arrows or one arrow into the heart of God, one sin, you've still offended a holy God. And nobody's sinned just once. We've all sinned numerous times in word, thought, and deed a day. We all deserve to be condemned. But because, because of God's great love for us, this holy, holy, holy God that made everything out of nothing, enters into the human condition because he does love us, because we can't be with him unless we're holy, because two cannot walk together unless they be in agreement. Therefore, his wrath has to be satisfied. So he takes the wrath that we deserve, and hell is just simply the repayment. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 is there twice it says they're, they're being judged and, and, and going to the lake of fire because of their deeds. You're basically being punished for exactly what you've done. Well, Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross and died in our place, he took our penalty so we can be delivered from death and damnation and have eternal life. And if we love Jesus Christ and we love the gospel of Jesus Christ, our hearts will be to not only proclaim it, but as Jude says, to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints.